Twist the bones and bend the back. Trim him of his baby fat. Give him fur, black as black. Just like this. Welcome to the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast, where we will nerd out over the shows, movies, books, games, and more that made us who we are today. Prepare yourself for a return to the 1990s on the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. July 16th, 1993. Hocus Pocus was released to theaters. Now that might sound a little bit crazy because, as you know, Hocus Pocus is a Halloween movie, but it was in fact released in the middle of the summer of 1993. It was directed by Kenny Ortega and featured an amazing cast, which of course was headlined by Bette Midler. We also had Kathy Najimy and Sarah Jessica Parker, who at this point in time, should be noted, was not a household name like she later uh, became. Still a very, very strong cast, but releasing the movie in the summer probably contributed to a pretty lackluster uh, box office performance. It really didn't gain much of a following until later years when ABC Family, and then later on the Disney Channel, aired it during Halloween, and that's really where Hocus Pocus gathered the following that it has today. But for me, the story does in fact go back to July 16th, 1993. I don't know if too many people saw the movie on the opening day, or if they saw it in the theater. Uh, Judging by ticket sales, probably not that many did. But I was a young kid at this time. I was six years old. And I had seen a preview, I don't remember where, if it was in a different movie or if it was on TV, but I had seen a preview for Hocus Pocus and I was immediately hooked on the idea of going to see it. And I convinced my mom to take me to see it. So we were in the theater in the middle of the summer watching this Halloween movie and I fell in love with it. And that story has not ended even into today. It's a foundational thing for me, maybe more than anything else from entertainment, from childhood. I got seriously not just into the movie, but even into the history behind it of the Salem Witch Trials. And that has led me many years later to going to Salem, Massachusetts as an adult, because I desperately wanted to see the place both where parts of the movie were shot, but where also the real events of the trials occurred. It might sound like an exaggeration, but in a lot of ways, since I actually do history as part of my job, and because this is something that I'm still passionate about today, it really has defined me in a lot of ways. So we're going to be going really deep into all of the scenes of Hocus Pocus. It just so happens that the sequel... 29 years later, we'll be dropping just uh, maybe a couple of weeks after this episode airs, so the timing could not be better. Now, if you're unaware of Hocus Pocus, 
you know, basically the idea is that we have these three witches. They live in a cottage in the forest near a pioneer village and that they often are responsible for the disappearances of children uh, in that nearby area. And we see very early in the movie that the witches are hung like many of the other uh, people who were involved in the real witch trials were hung. The history behind it, the real witch trials, is that we had 19 people who were hung for witchcraft and one person who was pressed to death. Uh, by large stones being placed on his chest. His name's Giles Corey. In real life, witchcraft was something that you could be accused of, whether you were a man or a woman. And there were male victims like Giles to the real witch trials that happened in Salem. But this movie focuses on sort of your stereotypical, you know, three witches, very much going back even to Shakespeare with Macbeth, the three witches in the woods. So that whole idea is pretty standard fantasy uh, type of fare. Now, I could go on a lot more about the actual witch trials. I'm going to leave the history more or less behind here to focus on the film. And I'll talk more about my trips uh, to Salem later as they come up in the scenes. So before uh, we get right into it, uh, obviously my co-host here has plenty to say as well. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Grab a pint. <laughs> um, I, I like to think they waited until our podcast to release Hocus Pocus 2 because this, this podcast started not that long ago and we had no contemplation of this, but... Wow. What a summation of, of your life, honestly, in so many ways. I got to say, if I could pick a movie, a theme, a genre that defined you, Hocus Pocus, Salem, Hauntings, Witchcraft would be the top of the list. And so what a privilege it is to discuss it. I know you, and so I know you have a lot to say about this. And so I'm excited to learn a lot because I love the movie. I watch it every year with my family, but definitely nowhere near... I contain nowhere near the amount of knowledge that you have because while I've wanted to go to Salem, I know you have. So I'm excited to hear about that. Maybe you've been to some of these locations, etc. And so, but I will share for me what Hocus Pocus means. Cause I, I did say, I mentioned it every year. I'm not sure when I first saw it, it definitely wasn't in theaters. My parents would never have let me watch it. Witchcraft in general, probably was something that they were very adamant against, but in our family, Halloween's our favorite secular holiday by far. And so we go hard every year and I'm excited to share all of our different traditions that my family has, including Halloween movies. We're starting our Halloween season with this movie. And so I'm super excited for that. Living in the Midwest helps a lot. It's by far my favorite season, the fall. It's cool, crisp air. There's no bugs. It's never too hot, limited rain, but yeah, we have several traditions involving local farms where we do hay rides, scary displays, cornfields. We love apple cider with spiced rum and cinnamon. Okay, the rum's just for me, but <laughs> it's it's something I love. We have Halloween music for days, and I will say that our Halloween marathon movies, that's something to die for. And it's not ritualistic in sense that we like we have certain movies we watch every year, but this movie ends up doing it every year. My wife and I, we pick back and forth about what we want at night. And then with the kids, we have our family Fridays where basically we do pizza, homemade pizza and a movie. And in Halloween time, we incorporate the family friendly movies. 
such as this and other ones that we will be discussing during our Halloween <laughs> episodes. And Hocus Pocus, it's always picked. I actually just last month, I, I stumbled upon my daughter getting ready for work, watching Hocus Pocus on her iPad. It was on our kitchen island. I couldn't believe it. And she just was watching it unprovoked. Just she wanted to see it. That's that's how important Hocus Pocus is for our family. And this was before she even knew we were recording it, before she even knew this was a, a sparkle in our eye, if you will. And she is so excited for this episode release. She recently heard our goosebumps, so she knows about the podcast and loves it. And she's she keeps telling me, hey, Daddy, when's the Hocus Pocus episode coming out? Let me know. Let me know. And that's... The, you know, the excitement of Hocus Pocus is, is surreal. And that's, that's my experience with it. So I'll throw it back to you to, to kind of lead us off into this adventure. Again, we're going scene by scene. We're going quote by quote as much as we can to really capture the essence of the movie so that you're situated and centered into what we're talking about. And Matt will do a really good job of that. Yeah. Uh, before we jump into the first scene, I have to say, I, um, I loved how you set the scene of the fall and the traditions. My wife and I are the same where we watch it every year. Uh, and my dog, of course, watches with us. Uh, I was very proud of your daughter when I saw that she was uh, watching it unprovoked of her own will uh, on, on the yeah, I sent, I sent I sent you the picture. I was like, oh, maybe I should post this on Instagram. But it's like, yeah, I'll just send Matt the picture. So that was really awesome. And um, this is like... Um, Paul had just mentioned there uh, sort of the beginning of our Halloween season. I guess if you wanted, you could consider the Are You Afraid of the Dark episode that came out before this as part of that as well. But this is really getting into it like serious because we've done Are You Afraid of the Dark before. That's not really a seasonal thing for us, but now we're really getting into it. We're going to have several episodes lined up a very much Halloween based content. So definitely stick around uh, for those, but just a couple of notes on some of the performers uh, getting into it. Uh, we have Sean Murray playing Thackeray Binks. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that he is only the, the, the person of Thackeray. The voice is done by Jason Marsden. And then we also have Amanda Shepard and a, you know, smaller role here is Emily Banks. We have a very small role, Elijah Thackeray's friend, played by Steve Voboyrol. And aside from that, uh, you know, we have our main cast we already mentioned at the beginning. So I got to stop you at this this whole Thackeray thing, because this is something that I, I recently learned and it blew my mind. And so, again, the actor Thackeray is played by Sean Murray and they dubbed his voiceover for Jason Marsden because he was a better, I guess, old English accent or whatever it was. And how crazy is that? And I, I kind of wanted to follow you, follow up with you on this as to who you thought kind of got it worse because you have Sean Murray, who's deemed by the director as not being able to develop the accent or not being able to speak properly. And at the same time, you have Jason Marsden, right? Who he is in a position where he's got this brilliant voice that they wanted but he's not able to act properly. He's not able to look the role. He's not handsome enough or whatever. You know, my wife's my wife said specifically that Thackeray was a heartthrob. I mean, Jason Marsden, he's not bad looking. I, I remember him from Boy Meets World, and I guess he's kind of nerdy, but this came before Boy Meets World, so he wasn't quite typecast in that role of nerd. 
And so what were your thoughts on this idea? I've never seen this before where you have a physical actor who's able to do the facial expressions and have the physical body with the actor who does the voiceover. What were your thoughts on who got the better end of that deal? I'm just curious as to what you thought about this. You know, I think they both sort of fell into their own niches. I mean, Sean Murray is on NCIS these days, and he's actually had, you know, a decent career. Uh, Marsden, of course, as well. You mentioned Boy Meets World. I know Jason Marsden has done some convention appearances. I've, I haven't seen him, but I know he still kind of is able to cash in on the fact that he was the voice of, of Binks. So I think that that's probably good for both of them. You know, I think they both sort of win in the situation. I will say it's unusual. And one other interesting fact I should mention before we really get into the first scene is that I watched for this review, I watched the 25th anniversary edition of the film, which has sort of an overlaid special features that will play during the film. And so it'll pop in with interviews, little uh, bits of trivia and information, and quotes will pop up on the screen. As we go through this episode, I will be peppering in facts from that 25th anniversary, and I highly recommend it. Uh, If anyone hasn't seen that edition. It has a lot of interesting stuff, some deleted stuff. It's definitely worth it. Um, But yeah, as far as the actors here, really weird situation. I actually had some empathy here with Sean Murray because, and this isn't going to be a personal story, but I actually, you know, I've, I've done some theater and I went out for a role in the diviners and I got called back for a lead role and it was me against someone else. And, you know, diviners, it's a, it's a touching story about a boy with divining rods, but we come in, it was in the deep South. And so I just, you know, I thought I'd crush the audition. Right. But then we get into this subsequent audition and I read my part. He's reading his part. I just do what I did for the audition. He comes in with the most thick accent possible. I mean, we're talking, it reminded me of in the goofy movie with the, Possum Playhouse. Now gather around, my possum pals. Join the jamboree. And he was like, hey, welcome, y'all. How y'all doing? And like, he was just so over the top. He had his thumbs in his pockets, talking with like a straw in his mouth. And I was just talking normal English. Needless to say, he got the role and I didn't because he fit the role. And while I was cast, I developed the accent over time for the play, but I didn't have it at the audition. And Again, he was a great actor, better than me. He deserved it. So I have no bitterness about that. But that's kind of why I felt for Sean Murray here. It's like, how do they not give him opportunities to develop an accent or try? Or I just I, I just imagine being the actor in that position where they're like, yep, your voice isn't good enough. And we're not going to give you an opportunity to develop it. You're just done. And so that's why I was, I just felt for him. I felt for him. I could just imagine your voice is not good enough. Yeah, and in that... 25th anniversary edition they do have some interviews uh some little bits of interviews with sean murray back then when they were interviewing about making the film he seems like a very likable actor you know like even back then as a kid that he he could have maybe handled it but uh, at least we get to experience both of them this way you know we get two for one as it were okay so first scene now that we have the cast down. Uh, I love the way it opens, because it actually begins with a book. 
It's not with Winifred's book, but it opens up with this very nice uh, sort of leather-looking book with candles all around it. It's sort of this low, orange, spooky light, and the book is inscribed with Hocus Pocus on the front. And we see the book open as we sort of enter on, and of course the music that's playing is very, very, um, gets the blood pumping, it's very energetic music, because this is to put you in the mind of a witch in flight. As soon as we open into the actual scene and we go into the movie, we see the silhouette of a single witch flying over water and then going across more landscape. We see forest, mountains, kind of a swampy area, and eventually over a um, village. Now, before we get into that too far, uh, it does mention at this point, as we see the credits across the screen, that we have David Kirshner as the writer-producer of Hocus Pocus. And he tells us uh, in this special edition that he wrote this story initially because of his children. He saw a cat passing by, and he started to make up a story about the cat and said, well, this cat used to be a boy. And his kid asked, well, why? What happened to the boy? And that's really where the seed of the story actually began. The music eventually stops, and we see Thackeray asleep in his bed, and very quickly this witch whooshes across the window. The witch in in question here is Sarah, the youngest of the witches. Sarah Jessica Parker, in other words. And she goes by the window very quickly, but it's enough to wake him up. He goes outside and he starts looking for his sister, Emily. And we hear, at this point, a little bit of singing in the background. Emily! And this is Sarah singing her song, which we learn is called Come Little Children. And she's singing this sort of sing-songy, haunting-type melody. And we hear this in the background as Thackeray asks Elijah, has he seen Emily? And one thing I should mention, of course, is that this is back in the year of 1693. So this is in this colonial era village with these boys dressed in that sort of way and Elijah says look they conjure and he points over to the woods and there is this purple smoke sort of coming up from the tree line at this point they go and stare at the woods and we can see Sarah and Emily running off into the woods Thackeray is very afraid because he can see the witch taking his sister off into these woods. And he commands Elijah to go and wake the others. And as Elijah runs off, Thackeray chases after Emily and Sarah. So this leads us into Thackeray running through the woods. Once again, we have this great music really sort of gets your blood pumping as he's yelling for Emily, chasing after her, but he can't catch up in time. He ends up 
tearing through all these branches and brambles and he falls at one point and takes this really gnarly just dive down a hill where he just rolls and rolls and there's a little uh mention in the special features that apparently uh, he was wearing a cross in the scene prior to this and the cross got lost in this scene in the woods and they couldn't find it so they ended up making a really half done cross out of twigs that they just sort of glued together and put onto him so in after this point he's wearing this like twig cross as opposed to what he had before Anyway, as he eventually gets up after falling, he looks up and we see a vision of the Sanderson house. And it is the perfect Halloween house. It is just so epic. It is this cottage in the woods, this big water wheel. And it just looks exactly like you would think of a witch cottage. This was an actual house that they constructed. The set was completely practical uh, it, it was said in one of the interviews that you could pick this house up and drop it somewhere and live there. It was completely, completely constructed. Thackeray sneaks to the windows. He starts to look inside. Emily is in a chair, and she's sort of in the middle of the main room of the cottage. And the witches are sort of hovering around her. We have three witches, of course, Winifred, the oldest, Mary, the middle one, and then Sarah, who we've already met. Thackeray and Emily sort of lock eyes for a second, and the witches start to get a little bit suspicious. They start looking around. Winifred busts the, the window open, and we have one of the first really, I think, famous lines. Oh, look. Another glorious morning. Makes me sick. So Winifred starts talking to her book, as she often does. They seem to have forgotten about the little disturbance. Sarah and Mary bickering with each other, as they generally do. We notice here that Mary barks whenever she gets a little bit irritated. She makes a barking sound like a dog. There's a reason for that, and we'll see why later. The book is really awesome. It has this eye in the front that just, like opens and closes and looks around like a human eye. And Winifred's able to make the book fly over to her as she is getting ready to prepare some sort of spell. As Winifred's preparing this spell, which we see is actually a potion recipe, Thackeray climbs up the water wheel and into the inside of the cottage. There's a little bit of a comedy scene here where Sarah Jessica Parker starts throwing toes at Mary, and they start throwing these dead man's toes at each other, which is one of the ingredients uh, in this recipe. And they're throwing the toes. One of them hits Winifred in the back of the head, and she turns around and he sort of glares at them, and they end up uh, calming down. We can see that Winifred is in charge. Now, as they're preparing this potion and the cauldron, they end up at one point biting, we don't really see it, but they bite part of their tongues off into the cauldron to sort of finish off the spell, and the potion is now ready. They put it into this really big spoon, and Winifred is moving it over toward Emily to force her to drink whatever this concoction is, and Thackeray yells out, No! <gasps> a boy! Get a divorce! I got it! I knew I smelled a boy! And... 
we're about to have our first confrontation here between Thackeray and the witches. Now, this is still really the same scene, but there's a lot that's happened already. So let's pause here. Thackeray and Elijah, they know when that smoke's in the air that this is what's happening. Was there any significance between that purple smoke flying up there that they would know? Because that's what triggered them, right? Well, I think that the... Uh, they must have seen it before because, or had some suspicion that these witches were out in the woods. I feel like the way that Elijah says, look, they conjure, he he somehow knows that this is like an unnatural thing. And I guess it would look unnatural to see this purple smoke coming up out of the tree line. My guess is that there might have been, the community might even know that they're out there and might just be afraid of them probably hasn't taken the step to actually go and do anything to them yet. Yeah. If it was just like a fire, it'd be a gray smoke, a purple smoke that might've been the key that they were brewing a potion and maybe the potion, at least the, you know, we know they brew a potion in the house. We'll talk about that, but maybe this is like a precursor ritual or something like that where it, it rises. That's my theory behind it. And after they see that, you see Emily running through the fields, right? And so this is kind of odd, but my, my, this is from my wife and she's a big TikToker. She likes watching TikTok videos. It popped up on her For You page, but there's a woman on TikTok who claims to be the Emily running through the fields. I guess Amanda Shepard, who played Emily, the actress, was in California and they filmed a lot of the scenes in California but then a lot of the scenes were shot in Massachusetts. And so they needed a different actress to do the running scenes. And so she was, she's like, I'm the one running through the fields and no one knows about it. She's not credited at all. I don't even know her name, but I thought I found that especially interesting. Is that accurate? I totally believe it. But if it's tr- I like, I think really she's uncredited and undocumented. I, I don't know how to, verify that. Now, one thing that I can tell you is that this scene was definitely filmed, not the whole thing with their house, but the whole thing in the village was filmed in Salem because this is a specific location in Salem. It is the Salem Pioneer Village, and it is still a thing that you can visit today. And it's basically like one of those reenactor villages where they show you what life was like back in the 1600s. And so that's where they were filming this particular scene. There, you know, there are a number of scenes where it was done in Salem. Most of it was done in California on the soundstage. So I wouldn't be surprised if they just used some stand-ins for the local scenes. Despite that, though, I will say this. Again, that actress, uncredited. Amanda Shepard, who plays Emily, is, I guess, well-known for this. She does a cameo for $45. So we might need to invest in that for the podcast here. Man, I've used Cameo before, and I would certainly do it again, (laughs) no doubt. All right, so there's still a lot more going on here, and we're still in the first scene. But basically now Thackeray yells no, and he starts fighting with the witches. He runs up to the potion, to the cauldron, and he starts pushing it. And Sarah and Mary are pushing it back against him. He eventually knocks it over, pours out most of the potion, Winifred's freaking out, of course, because this is, you know, her uh, potion that she needs in order to... We still don't actually know what they're doing, but we will find out that they're 
they want Emily to drink this potion so that they can basically suck out her soul and eat it to become young. He dumps out most of the potion, but Winifred hits him with lightning before he's able to free Emily. This is something that she does later on. She has this, you know, Emperor Palpatine style lightning she can shoot out of her fingers. And he gets struck down to the floor. And he's basically just, you know, unconscious at this point. This gives the witches the opening to get back up and force Emily to drink the potion. She starts to sort of shimmer. We get the sort of foggy effect around her as she's now under the influence of the potion and the witches suck out as much as they can and we see when they turn back around that they have de-aged they have become quite a lot younger And they're all pretty excited about it, but they still have to deal with this boy who is now in their cottage. And this is where they go ahead and we see one of our first spells, uh, which is the turning of Thackeray into a cat. Twist the bones and bend the back. Here to decapitate American Mystic. Trim him of his baby fat. Here to decapitate American Mystic. Give him fur black as black just of course we know from this point uh he'll be mainly referred to as binks anyway it's just at this moment right when he's turned into the cat that we hear a clamoring at the door and it sounds apparently that the townsfolk elijah must have finally done his job and gotten the townsfolk together So they're all down at the cottage, banging on the doors with pitchforks and torches, classic mob at the the door of the cottage. The sisters try to sort of brace the door and stop them from coming in. I love the quotes that they have here. Winifred says, We are just three kindly old spinster ladies. And Mary says, Spending a quiet evening at home. And then Sarah says, It's at this point that Winifred goes to choke Sarah, but it's too late. And the next we see of them, they are outside of the house with nooses around their necks, ready to be hung. Uh, This is a detail, historically, that they get right. Because in Salem, there were no burnings of witches. That only happened in Europe in witch hunts that happened over on the continent there. In Salem, hanging was the typical punishment for witches. Now, the year is a little bit off, because really the the main hysteria of the witch trials happened in 1692. This is set in 1693, just because they wanted it to be 300 years ago from when the movie was released in 1993. We have a scene here where the witches are on the the block, you know, sort of ready to be hung. Thackeray's dad tries to find out what they did with him. I will ask thee one final time. Yes? What hast thou done with my son, Thackeray? Thackeray. Mm. Answer me! Well, I don't know. God's got my tongue. (laughs) 
And of course, nobody knows what that means. Eventually, the witches start singing. And when they do, the book, Winifred's spell book, that one of the townspeople was holding on to falls onto the ground and it flicks open to a page. And it leads Winifred to read out this curse upon the town and sort of predicting her return. Fools! All of you! My ungodly book speaks to you when all hallows eve and the moon is around. A virgin will summon us from under the ground. <laughs> we shall be back and the lives of all the children shall be mine! <laughs> the dad basically like gives up and he just makes a motion to kick the boxes out from under the witches and they hang. There was a deleted scene here, a very small part of the scene. Uh, it's a sort of a comedic moment where Mary asks Winifred if she left the cauldron running and she starts wondering about if she left the cauldron on and she's like very concerned about it. From here, we start to actually fade out of the story into modern day we hear a voice saying, Poor Thackeray Binks. Neither his father, his mother, nor anyone else ever knew what became of him those 300 years ago. And so, the Sanderson sisters were hanged. And we will see that we are in a classroom. I think there's more to say about what just happened. Yeah, the... I'm just realizing it, but you said cats got my tongue. I mean, that hit, man, because the, the thing that hit me was Thackeray snuggling up with his dad. Away! Away, beast! You know, he, he comes up and, like, what a cat does, rubs his head against his dad, and his dad's basically like, be gone. You know, he's mourning his son dying or not knowing where his son is. And that's his son snuggling up against him. And that hits so hard. And then you said the quote about the cat's got my tongue. And I'm like, wow, that just adds so much more to that scene. For me, that, that whole 1693 scene was a big reason of why I was interested in like the history of the witch trials and everything. But now we're going to move ahead to the modern day. So we're in the classroom. We see that this whole story that we've just experienced was actually being narrated by this teacher who is dressed in full Halloween costume gear. Uh, I don't know if they specifically say, but I imagine that she's probably an English teacher because she's talking about this story. She has the witch hat on. She's dressed in all this Halloween stuff. And as she finishes the story, she throws a streamer that she had hidden in her hand at this random girl in the front row and freaks her out. Um, I always liked the teacher. We don't see her anymore, but I thought she was pretty funny. And I wish that I had a teacher that would like just tell stories, you know, about Halloween and stuff is pretty cool. But we see Max and Max is going to be our hero in this story. He's the, you could say the main character of the story. He's certainly the protagonist of the story. And he's just sitting there, looks very disinterested in what the teacher is saying, doesn't seem to care about the story. He's actually drawing something, which is a Grateful Dead fan art that he's doing on his paper. And very quickly, we find out that he is a skeptic. He does not believe in the witches or the story. 
And I got to say, I agree with Max here. And I have to disagree with you on the teacher, man. I just, it's like, it seems cultish to me. I mean, I don't want my kids learning about these witches and this history. It seems like they were in, like indoctrinating them in, into this like mythos and stuff. Like they're going to come home to me terrified, mortified about these witches who don't exist. Now we know they do, but in, in today's age, if that had happened, I'd be like, whoa. I mean, I, I would file a complaint. I'd say, listen, you can't tell my kids about this stuff. Well, first of all, this is a high school. These kids are like 17, 18 years old. So just just to, to mention that, I don't know, man. I can't, I, I, you know, I'd be all about it. We're going to have to go to the superintendent on this. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Max, uh, he claims that Halloween was made by the candy company, which is completely wrong. As uh, Allison, we see, explains the real origins. Now, Allison, I should have said, Max is played by Omri Cap. This is really his big role. The irony here is that Leonardo DiCaprio was one of the people who tried out for this part, evidently. It was in the DVD extra, uh, extras that I mentioned before. So did Leo not get the role, or was there another project that he was doing? Like, I, I can't imagine Leo didn't get the role here. That's a really good question. I'm not sure why he didn't. Maybe he turned it down. I, I don't know. So we have Omri Katz with Max, and then we have uh, Vanessa Shaw playing Allison. Now, uh, she's actually still pretty active. Uh, Vanessa Shaw, you can look at her IMDb. She, she's been doing things on and off ever since. But Allison explains the real history of Halloween. It just so happens that Halloween is based on the ancient feast called All Hallows' Eve. It's the one night of the year where the spirits of the dead can return to Earth. That it goes back to these old festivals, and everyone gives her a round of applause for that, uh, as she sort of puts Max in his place. He decides, though, to still go up to her right in the middle of class while everybody is watching, including the teacher. And he gives his number to Allison. We'll see how that works out. There's no area code in what the number that she gives him is. You didn't didn't used to have to dial area codes. I remember when we were young, that wasn't a thing. That became a thing. If it was a local number, you didn't have to dial an area code. Well, I was that, thinking he's from California, right? So I was like, he probably would have to do house a phone. area code. Uh, they didn't have okay. cell phones back then. So yeah, it, it would yeah. have been his house phone. It was probably uh, their local house phone. It is, of course, a 555. Uh, but yeah, 555-9142 in there uh, for his number. So anyway, right afterwards, the bell rings. Everyone gets up to leave. We have this other random guy who doesn't have any other lines in the movie, but he comes up to Max and he says he says something like, hey, Max, fat chance. And that's all we hear of this guy. So then right outside afterwards, we see Max catching up to Allison as she is walking through the trees and the leaves. She's wearing a cloak. Looks kind of witchy to me. It has a hood that later on when she walks away is pulled up and it looks like a witch hood. And I'll talk more about that later. But all we see here is that they have a short conversation. Allison says, oh yeah, you just moved here, right? And Must be a big change for you. Yeah, that's for sure. You don't like it here? Oh, the leaves are great, but I don't know. Just all this Halloween stuff. You don't believe in it? What do you mean, like the Sanderson sisters? No way. 
she gives him back the note with his number and says, Trick or treat. And then she walks off. Max so by Ob- fat chance, <laughs> so by fat chance, you mean big chance, right? I mean, big chance. Well, when Max opens the note, it is just his number again with nothing else written on it. So Allison was not impressed, I guess, with his his bravado in the classroom. After this, Max continues on his way home. He rides his bike through town into a cemetery and he takes a moment to sort of stop and look off at the town. And it's just then while he's staring and looking off that we see these two other characters, Jay and Ernie. Now, Jay and Ernie pop up from behind a tombstone and they start kind of hassling Max a little bit. They ask where he's from, and Max says he's from Los Angeles, and they look totally stumped, like they don't know what he's talking about, and he says, L.A., and they're like, oh, Ernie says they're very health conscious in Los Angeles, and we get into this whole um, kind of like Abbott and Costello situation, it's like they're a comedy duo, Jay and Ernie, and... Uh, One of my favorite parts is where Jay introduces Ernie. I'm Jay. This is Ernie. How many times I gotta tell you? My name ain't Ernie no more. It's Ice. Ice. This is Ice. And he turns, Ernie turns around and he has Ice shaved into the back of his head, which is pretty great. So anyway, um, these two guys are sort of like these bumbling, like high school bully characters. We'll see a lot more of them throughout. So one of the things that Jay and Ernie do a lot, or Jay and Ice, sorry, do a lot, is that whenever they make a joke or they think they burned someone, they do this like double high five and chest bump at the same time. They do that here. Uh, They try to get stuff from Max. They're like, do you have any smokes? Do you have this or that? And Max keeps saying no. And then Ice is like, well, gee, what am I going to do with my afternoon? And Max says, maybe you could learn to breathe through your nose. Leading to Jay, like, cackling. He starts laughing like it's hilarious and then realizes he shouldn't laugh and he stops. They decide to take Max's shoes. He has these cross trainers. And, of course, they also develop a new nickname for him, Hollywood, which they are going to use throughout the rest of the movie. The next scene, uh, you know, Max is riding his bike away with no shoes, and he will eventually get back to his house. Well, the first part of this scene, it's kind of weird because when I watch this again, knowing the podcast, I would freeze frame a lot, like spell books, things that if you just watched you wouldn't notice and so in this scene they actually do a zoom in on a gravestone as max is coming in and so i was curious about that and it says archibald sinclair and it mentions that there's a rebecca who died at 67 and that archibald died at 90 okay and rebecca was the wife of archibald so archibald died in 1870 rebecca died in 1853 but when I first watched it, for whatever reason, I thought it was 1838 that Rebecca died. So she died far earlier than Archibald. And so I was like, that's mathematically impossible. And I don't want to go into the details of that because I literally, my mind blew trying to do the math on that. But it could not happen. At the same time, I was like, man, either that or Archibald robbed the cradle because Rebecca must have been far younger than him. And 
I tried to reconcile how this could happen. I later learned as I researched that she actually died in 1853, which made a lot more sense because there's only 17 years of difference and between their deaths, I should say. And so they were very close in age and that completely changed my mentality of it. But what I realized is it was an actual gravestone. I mean, it was, it was on a cemetery site. And it was at Old Burial Hill Cemetery, about 12 minutes from Salem. This was an actual gravestone taken. Uh, the picture was taken at an actual gravestone. And so my mindset changed completely to, wow. I mean, and, and my wife mentioned this. She thought it was cute that they he never remarried Archibald. And so here's a real gravestone in Salem that they took this picture in. And so the scene must have been filmed there as well. And that was, a, that was a unique perspective that I had seen. And again, I had a little journey because I kind of messed up with the, with the date, but I'm glad it led me to this unique experience of this really old cemetery. I think it was in the 1600s when it was originally founded. And I'm, have you been there? I'm sure I, I feel like maybe you've been there or, or it's a, a touristy thing around Salem. I haven't actually been to the cemetery because it is a little ways out of Salem and I didn't really have a car when I was there, so we were just walking. But it is nearby. I, I could be wrong on this, but I... Well, you actually already mentioned Burial Hill. I mean, that, so it's sort of... It's definitely a thing that would have been done on site, no doubt. He's going to head home, and once he gets home, we see his parents unboxing. Um, they're still in the kitchen, or I think it was the kitchen, unboxing stuff as Max comes in. He's really angry. He says, I can't believe you made me move here. And he walks right through, goes up to his room. His mom notices he has no shoes on. And the dad is just like, eh, must be some form of protest. We see Max up in his room and he starts cuddling his pillow. Um, he starts talking to the pillow. He is talking to it like it's Allison and talks about how soft she is and everything. At that moment, his little sister, Danny, bursts out of his closet dressed like a witch. And she starts laughing. She jumps up on the bed and she says, <laughs> Danny! <laughs> I scared you. I scared you. Ha 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 ha. I'm Allison. Allison. Kiss me. I'm Allison. Mom and Dad told you to stay out of my room. Max obviously is mortified by this whole thing. I have to say, Danny's costume is fantastic. The witch costume, just awesome. Danny is played by an actress who has had some renown as well. She continues working to today. She was in Walking Dead a couple seasons ago. Um, but her name is Thora Birch, and she's another major part of, of the movie here. So Max um, refuses uh, to take her trick-or-treating that night, because that's what she really wants from him, is to take her out trick-or-treating. And this leads to her yelling down for their mom whenever he refuses. And the next thing we know, we're going to see Max taking her trick-or-treating. Clearly the parents forced him to take her out. There is a deleted scene here where Max and his dad have this big argument about taking her out. And Max is saying how it's not fair. And the dad says, well, if you're not big enough to take your sister out, you're not big enough to get your driver's permit this year. Now, this whole subplot about Max driving is a thing that comes up, and it, it makes more sense with the deleted scene. There's also a scene in the 
book, the novelization of Hocus Pocus, which I also have right here, which was released in 1993, that includes a little bit about driving as well. The thing is about the book, I'll say quickly, is this book, if you can get your hands on it, I highly recommend. It is by Todd Strasser. Uh, The Walt Disney Pictures presents Hocus Pocus, the official novelization that came out in 1993. The author was working with an earlier version of the script when he wrote this. So there are discrepancies between the book and the movie. I'm not going to talk about all of them, but there are some major ones that when they come up, I will be mentioning that as well. Now this will take us into another scene where they are out trick-or-treating, but let's pause here. That's crazy with the novelization, man. That's like, as a dad, I would totally do that. I mean, Max is being a jerk here, and I'm glad the dad, you know, hung that over. That should be in the movie. I mean, that should be in the movie. I mean, Max says, Come on, Max. Couldn't you forget about being a cool teenager just for one night? Please? Come on. We used to have so much fun together trick-or-treating. Remember? It'll be like old times. Yeah, well, the old days are dead. The old days are dead. Being super stern. How cold is that? I mean, jeez, man. Like, it's so sad that Max can no longer enjoy Halloween the way that he should as a kid. And me and my brothers, we did Halloween trick-or-treating through high school even. And it's fun to take my kids around, even though I don't, you know, trick-or-treat for candy. It's 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 like a, it's a huge tradition. How, how do you not connect with that so i'm glad the dad stepped in and i I, man i wish that was in the movie but it's like you gotta scold him for that he's being a big jerk here you know my kids are not quite at that age but they're similar in terms of age when they get there you know so in four years they'll probably be about where max and danny were that would break my heart if my older kid would not connect with my younger kid now the genders are reversed but you know if my older daughter refused to go trick-or-treating with my son because it's not cool anymore. Oof. That would kill me. Well, as we will see, uh, one way or the other, Max ends up taking her, and it doesn't go well at first. <laughs> um, it gets better, but, you know, in the trick-or-treating scene, basically what we have is uh, it, it opens with this really memorable thing. To me, when I was watching this in the theater in particular, I really remember this shot because we see this skeleton in a coffin, it's like it sits up as the kids are all coming down, up and down the stairs of this house. They're trick-or-treating, and it makes this noise. And I just thought that was a really memorable, like, decoration for some reason. But there is actually another short deleted scene that shows the parents. It cuts back to the parents, and they're on the porch talking about how it was great that they moved to Salem because now they don't have to worry about all the natural disasters in California that they had to worry about before, and that, you know, the only thing they have to worry about in Salem are witches, the dad says. And the mom says, witches, witches, that's funny. So that's the whole scene, but I thought it was a neat little, you know, because obviously they moved to take their kids out of danger, and now they're going to run into this whole situation with the Sanderson sisters. You've got the earth shakes, the earth shakes, as uh, Land Before Time would say. In California, right? Oh, wow. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. 
Are so, there any other natural disasters in California? Forest fires, you know, oh, yeah, forest fires, all okay. kinds of stuff, man. But yeah, so that was, uh, I thought that was a good scene, but that was cut. It was pretty short. It was like 30 seconds long. But anyway, we're so we're back trick-or-treating with Max and Danny. Eventually, they run into Jay and Ice again. And this point now, they've set up a toll booth outside of a house where they are forcing kids to dump out chocolate Danny walks up to these guys and she's not taking it at all. She says, drop dead, moron. Ice, of course, doesn't like that at all, but Danny says, Just so happens I've got my big brother with me. Max! <laughs> Hollywood! <laughs> oh no! Oh! <laughs> they do this crazy little routine together where they like one of them pretends like they're going to the door trick-or-treating and he's like ding dong and then the other one's like whoa and 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 then they say ah and they run around and they do their high five and fist bump thing just making fun of max being out trick-or-treating of course they get into this argument it almost comes to blows. We get to the point where Max just shoves the candy at Ice, and he basically just tells him to cool it, and he walks off. Uh, Ice, of course, yells after him that the shoes fit great, just to rub that in. Danny and Max have an argument. You know, Danny says, you know, you should have punched him, and Max is like, he would have killed me. And Danny says, at least you would have died like a man. Danny runs off and ends up crying in sort of like a bale of hay next to some pumpkins. It's like a very memorable scene, the way it's shot with her there, like next to this these decorations. Max, thankfully, sort of has a change of heart here. He talks through why he's acting this way. Danny, I'm sorry. It's just that I hate this place. I miss all my friends. I want to go home. Well, this is your home now, so get used to it. Yeah. Give me one more chance. Why should I? Because I'm your brother. <laughs> And Danny gives him a little tough love. They sort of talk it out. And Max starts teasing her, saying, oh, look, something just flew across the sky. And kind of, you know, tickle, wrestle around a little. And this is where things sort of turn. Because from here on, now Max and Danny are more on the same page. So I'm glad that we kind of get the unpleasantness out of the way. And that Max can start to act a little bit nicer. So about how Max was, I mean, I saw it as him standing up for Danny. Now, she wanted him to punch Ice in the face. Sorry, Ernie in the face. I, I will not call him Ice. Ernie in the face and Jay in the face and get in a big brawl. He gave up his candy, right? I mean, he gave up the candy to avoid the confrontation and move on. As far as I know, Danny still had her candy, right? And so... I felt like Max did as good of a job as he could. He wasn't like, you know, what you'd expect from like a, a boyfriend, girlfriend or wife and husband where he's like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I'll, I'll beat you in a battle or whatever. But I feel like he, he like did as much as he could while still being with Danny. And so I kind of 
I thought Max, in my opinion, handled this as well as a brother could have. And then he had the conversation away saying, listen, like I did what I had to do to escape this potential. Who knows? They may have had a, a, a shiv or something like he doesn't know. But he I think going out with trick or treating and giving up his candy to avoid the situation, I feel he kind of I, I think he did right as a brother. I think in his actions he did, yeah. I, I think the thing that really triggered Danny to be upset was that... So what he says is, you just humiliated me in front of half the guys at school, so collect your candy and get out of my life. And then she says, I want to go home now, and that's where she ends up crying. So I do think that as far as the way he acted toward the bullies, yeah, I think that that was the right call. He, he can't get into a fight with those guys. It wasn't just Jay... And ice, there was also all those other guys with them too. There was like a whole crowd of dudes there. So um, I think that was the best he could do. So we end up outside of this amazing house now that Max and Danny have made up and they're going to go trick-or-treating some more. This house happens to be Allison's house. In real life, this is actually the Ropes Mansion. I have been there. It's one of the major sites in Salem. It's historical in its own right. It was built in 1727. It is on Essex Street, which is the main street that goes through the, the sort of the main part of town where all the tourist stuff is. Although this is a f- little bit further down the road into the actual neighborhoods that are around. And you can get tours there. In this movie, all we really need to know is that Allison is there. So they go in and immediately they see all these fancy people, fancy decorations. They're dressed up. And these like real um, old school costumes with wigs and these fancy dresses and coats like revolutionary or colonial people might wear. And they see like a sort of like this big stash of candy right in the main entryway. Uh, Before they even go in, Danny says, rich people probably will make us drink cider and bob for apples. Which is interesting because I don't know if I've ever actually bobbed for apples like at a legit Halloween party. But anyway, they go in and they see all these things. And then right at the top of the stairs, there are these big stairs right at the uh, top of the entry room when they go in. And Allison appears right at the top. And she's dressed up in this fancy dress just like the other women at the place are. Max is speechless. He sees her there right at the top of the stairs and it's like a it's like a balcony scene type of moment almost. And she comes down, they start talking a little bit. Uh she goes to get them some cider and comes back and she tells Dan- Allison t- uh, tells Danny that she likes her costume. And Danny mentions that she likes Allison's dress but that she can't wear it because Quote, I don't have any. What do you call them, Max? Yabos? <laughs> Max likes your yabos. In fact, he loves them. So there's this super awkward moment. Allison laughs kind of in an embarrassed way. Max looks like he's about to die. Allison sort of pivots by giving Danny this uh, like witch um, chocolate pop thing that's on a stick that she starts eating. I have to say, that bit of candy, the witch sucker thing, I always wanted one of those. And I could never find them, like as a kid. I never found one like that in a store ever. 
it was a few years ago. I actually ordered some on Etsy that somebody had made. And it only took me like 26 years, but I finally got one of those things. Anyway, we find out that Allison's mom used to run the old Sanderson Museum because they turned the house into a museum. It's at this point that she um, is, you know, that she reveals this, that Max suggests that they go out to the museum and that maybe Allison can convert him into believing in the old legend that he doesn't believe in. So she goes upstairs to change, and while she's gone, Max and Danny have this whole negotiation, you know, because Danny doesn't want to go to the house. She's afraid. Max, I'm not going up there. My friends at school told me all about that place. It's weird. Danny, this is the girl in my dreams. So take her to the movies like a normal person. Danny! Look, just, just do this one thing for me, and I'll do anything you say. But eventually, Max makes this deal that he will go trick-or-treating as Peter Pan and Wendy in tights next year. And so, with the deal made, we head over to the Sanderson house. Yeah, uh, about this party, I mean, I love apple cider. I mean, and I would assume it's spiked in some capacity. This is the kind of party I always dreamed of having as a kid. And now I'm an adult. I'm probably the same age as the actors and actresses in this party, but I don't have the friends to make this happen. And it would probably be a murder mystery of some sort. And it'd be really cool, but nope. Instead, I just take my kids out for trick or treating and I'm, I'm super boring, but I think there was a little too much hate towards this party. And I think it was super cool that it existed but obviously it does not cater to the kids so they got to get out of there yeah i mean as a kid the party doesn't probably look as exciting um it's it is a rich people situation and i will say i'm not a huge fan of people being rich and being high and mighty and elite and everything but i think that as a as an event to do it would be fun especially if it was like a murder mystery type thing i would love that but so we go over to uh, the Sanderson house. They go in there. Max gets a lighter from the stand that was put in, I guess, whenever it was a museum. And we notice a POV, a point of view shot coming from outside of the house. We see very quickly on that this is a cat that is looking through the windows. Allison is showing them all around, talking about the history. There is a part from the original script, which was removed... That is actually in the book that I mentioned earlier, the novelization. So I'm going to read a little part of that. This is from page 33 of the Todd Strasser novelization. Danny stepped cautiously toward the three dummies and stared at the one with the red hair. That's Winifred, the eldest, said Allison. Her father was a warlock. She pointed to a chubby woman whose dark hair curled like a horn on top of her head. This is Mary, the middle sister. Her father was a bloodhound. She could follow the scent of a child for miles. Is this Sarah? Danny pointed at the youngest and prettiest of the three. Sarah had a shapely figure and beautiful thick blonde hair. Yes, said Allison. The strange one. She would lure children, usually young boys, into the woods to play, and they would never be seen again. Now, this is actually really important because it gives you the backstory of, of all three of the witches. 
and they don't have the same father, and that's why they have these wildly different abilities. It says Winifred's father was a warlock. She's clearly the most gifted of the of the three when it comes to actual magic. She's also the you know the smartest of the three. Uh, we have Mary having a bloodhound as a father. That explains why she barks like a dog sometimes, and why her power is sniffing out kids. And then Sarah. Um, it mentions, it didn't actually say here, but I had seen elsewhere, uh, it mentions that her father was, it might have been in a, like a part of the script that was gotten rid of or something, but that her father was sort of like a village idiot type character, but she is the one who is the most seductive of the witches, and she actually has this uh, song that she uses to lure kids away, which we already heard a little bit of at the beginning of the movie. So are they half-sisters? They are. They're technically half-sisters. They only have the mother in common. And you'll notice that in some scenes, they're all very dedicated to the mother. They mention her a few times throughout. Allison tells us a detail about Winifred's spellbook, which is in a glass case. She says that it was given to her by the devil, and that it, it is bound in human skin. Max sees the black flame candle in a candlestick holder, and Allison tells him that, according to the legend, if a virgin lights the candle, that it'll bring the witches back to life. So Max says, So let's light the sucker and meet the old broads. And do the honors? No, thanks. And Danny obviously just wants to leave at this point. At this moment, a cat jumps down, knocks the lighter out of Max's hand, just totally ruins the moment because it's this sort of terrifying thing that happens and the cat runs away. And you would think at this point Max would back down, but he's angry. He can tell that this whole thing with the cat just kind of ruined his chance with Allison. Nobody's having fun anymore. And he says, Oh, come on. It's just a bunch of hocus pocus. Max, I'm not kidding this time. It's time to go. Max, no! Uh-oh. And then he lights the candle. We have this whole cinematic moment where the, the candles go out all throughout the room, and the floorboards start shaking. There's like this green light underneath. We hear this whooshing of wind, and it stops for a second. Then all of the lights turn back on. Everything starts going crazy again, and the door to the cottage bursts open, and we see the silhouette of the three witches as they start to go inside. Winifred comes in first. Now, the kids have all hidden at this point. A great moment here with Sarah. I really like to keep an eye on what Sarah Jessica Parker is doing and sort of like these background shots. Sometimes there's stuff going on, but she's doing some like weird thing off in the corner. And in this instance, she's reaching up above the door frame. And we see a little bit later, she says, my lucky rat tail, just where I left it. Winifred goes over and wakes up the book almost like it's a child. She's like tapping on it very gently. Clearly, she's sort of cooing at it and is very happy to see the book. But Mary starts to smell children. In particular, she smells a young girl, and she starts looking for Danny. So the witches go over, they find Danny, and she tries to, to 
sort of talk like she's from 300 years ago. I thought doubt never come, sisters. <laughs> Greetings, little one. Twas I who brought you back. Imagine. And to ingratiate herself with them, but of course, they see through that pretty quickly. They find out from Danny that the year is 1993, and they put her in a chair, the same one that Emily sat in all those years ago, and they ask her to stay for supper. She says, I'm not hungry. But Mary says, oh, but we are. And then they start struggling with her as if they're about to try to eat her, to restrain her, maybe to suck out her soul. And then this just starts this whole battle that occurs. Uh, before I get too into that, there was a lot there. What do you, what do you think about um, the way they bring the witches back? What do you think about Max's choice to light the candle? And... What about Binks and his attempt to stop it? Well, <laughs> I got to talk about Binks. So I was, I'm kind of struggling with this because we know when the witches were originally hung, Binks went to his father and kind of rubbed against him. And here we know Binks is trying to stop Max from lighting the candle by knocking it over, etc. Binks can talk. So why did he not talk during those previous scenes? Is there something about the ritual where he can't talk prior to and then now he can talk? Because otherwise, that'd be pretty nice if you could just talk and say, hey, Max, don't light the candle. You're going to bring him back, right? That'd be nice to know. But for whatever reason, he cannot talk prior to the ritual. I mean, yeah, that's not very well explained. I, I was looking in the book to see if there was an explanation. There really isn't. I think that it has to do with the magic. It probably has to do with lighting the candle. It might be that Max and Allison and Danny were there when they lit the candle. Because later on, you know, he can't talk like when he's trying, when they're hanging around adults or people like that either. So maybe they're sort of part of the spell now, part of the magic. Um, that's the vague sort of answer that I can give, but I don't have a great answer for it. The other thing was this scene in particular was like, these witches are so lovable, but it's kind of messed up, right? Because they, they're, they're talking about eating Danny and it's like, we love these characters, but yet they're trying to eat Danny. And it's like, there's that dichotomy, which we'll see time and time again of these lovable witches that are actually evil. And that's kind of the joy of the film is that they do this all the time. And so that really stuck out with me was, oh, wait, they're actually really evil, but funny and loving. I think that's what makes the movie work because, you know, this is a Disney movie. It was made mainly for kids. It does have some stuff in there for adults. Like when we get to the bus scene later, one of my favorites, but they had to strike that balance between humor and horror. You know, they couldn't go full horror, obviously, because it was a Disney movie. And I think they did a nice job of making the witches goofy and silly, but also being able to have some dramatic moments. Because there is some, like, pretty good stuff in here as far as, like, moments between characters, especially, like, Danny and Binks and Max and Danny Max and Allison, I mean, there's some good character development in here, and I, I think we'll see that as we go. And then part of the scene is basically 
Max lighting the sprinkler system to kind of shine water upon them, and they think it's some magic spell that Max is doing. Hey! You mess with the great and powerful Max, and now must suffer the consequences. I summon the burning rain of death. And the water's falling down. They think they're getting burned alive and dying, and they're like, "Oh, it's water." So it's it's kind of funny. And uh, Sarah, especially in this scene, you know, she sticks her her tongue out, very childish, very silly. You know, she's the classic blonde here, where she's just living life, having fun. And so it's it's so strange. But in this same scene, she eats a spider. And just nonchalantly doing it. And then I'm thinking, oh, oh yeah, why is she eating a spider? Oh, yeah, she's a dead person here. And this is not how she actually looks. So it really messed with my mind of of like, this is the, the beautiful witch, but she's evil, eating a spider, and she's dead. And it was like, wow, like, that really hit me hard. Yeah, I love the spider part. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Basically, what happens is when they are about to try to, to get Danny... Max and Allison and everybody jump out and they attack the witches. Uh, Max gets beaten up pretty bad. He gets lightninged by Winifred and thrown up against the wall. Um, Allison is really the MVP here because she manages to put Mary down with like a pan that she hits her in the head with. And then Danny as well, actually, she takes her candy bag and smacks Winifred and Sarah with it. And Max is able to go up to the top of the cottage and then that's when he does the sprinkler thing and of course the witches all go and hide because they think that it's a real spell uh they hide underneath this alcove as max is coming down he slips and falls and we see bink standing on top of him and this is where he first talked bink says nice going max you can talk yeah no kidding now get the spell book Come on, move it! So Max goes over, smashes the glass, gets the book out, and Winifred's freaking out as he takes the book. But the witches still think that this is, like, this is, quote, the burning rain of death. So they're hidden under the alcove. And the good guys all rush out with the book. A little bit later, Winifred realizes that it's only water. It is but water! And that's when Sarah starts like opening her mouth and catching the, the raindrops inside. They go outside to chase after the kids. They very quickly, though, are confused by this road that was paved in front of their cottage. And that's something that, that I really love about this movie is the constant fish out of water of these people from 300 years ago being in the modern era. So they push Sarah onto the road because Winifred and Mary, I guess, figure that she's expendable and they they push her onto the road and she realizes that it's firm. So they all get together and they do this thing that they do several times, uh, which according to the special features, they called slurking. It is a combination of slinking and lurking. And this is where the witches, the three of them, sort of walk next to each other and stride together down the road. But very soon, an alarm and lights from a fire truck 
freak them out, and they run screaming back toward the house. After that, Binks has led the kids over to a graveyard, and he says, It's hollowed ground. Witches can't set foot here. That will come into play a bit later. Now, it's at this point that in the special features, there's a little uh, featurette about Binks and how they made the cat uh, work in the in the movie. They did have real cats, but then they also had this uh, computer graphic animatronic type of deal going on. This was the first movie that they did something like this in, according to the special featurette. Nothing like it had ever been done before. This was like the pioneering moment of modern CGI in a lot of ways, which is pretty wild to me. We hear a little bit more from Binks about the history of the witches. He talks about a person named Billy Butcherson. He actually perches up on top of his gravestone, and he's telling his story. Long story short, uh, he was Winifred's, I guess, boyfriend, you could say, but he ended up messing around with Sarah, and when Winifred found out, she poisoned him, sewed his mouth shut, and then he died, obviously, so... We'll see more of Billy a bit later. So this is the first time I actually noticed that Sarah is Winnie's sister. So Sarah Jessica Parker, right? Billy cheated on Winifred with Sarah, and yet these sisters are still tight. So is this a, you know, blood is thicker than anything type of scenario? Why are they still close? I mean, Billy cheated on Winifred with Sarah, who's the young, beautiful blonde. And this is a big theme with Winifred is that she's ugly. So how is Winifred still talking with Sarah here? I don't know if she has a choice because like, even though Winifred uh, acts like she's the only one that matters and and we will see that she feels that way uh, as we get further into things, the witches sort of have to work as a team or else they don't work at all. Yeah. Cause you have Mary like locating kids with her, her scent and everything. Sarah actually has one of the, I would argue, most important powers, though, because she does the whole come little children thing, which is what really brings the kids there. I don't know, maybe it's a necessity thing, but uh, yeah, maybe it's also has to do with blood. Probably, it sounds like she took out her anger on Billy rather than Sarah, which uh, we will see more of, too, and how Billy feels about that, too. That's putting putting it lightly, based on Billy. (laughs) And Billy is great. The actor who plays Billy is Doug Jones, and Doug Jones is maybe the most accomplished, like, monster actor that I've that I know of. I mean, he was in Pan's Labyrinth and a whole bunch of other stuff. And he plays a role in Star Trek Discovery, uh, which is currently, you know, airing on, on Paramount Plus. He's had a really big career and this was really toward the beginning of it. So he's very well established as a, an actor who acts in prosthetic and makeup and that sort of thing. So We cut back to the house where the witches are cowering behind this um, sort of sign that's in front of their house. It's like a historical sign. And they're watching as these firemen walk out of the house back to their truck. And Winifred thinks that they are witch hunters. She says, Observe, they wear black robes and carry axes to chop the wood to burn us. (laughs) As they watch the firefighters sort of go away, 
This is another random thing that Sarah does, and you mentioned this before. She notices a spider crawling by, and she says, what a pretty spider, and then she grabs it and just immediately starts chomping on it. And Winifred starts explaining how, okay, we need to get the book so we can make the potion to steal the lives from the children before sunup, or we're going to turn to dust. Sarah is still chomping on the spider as she's telling this whole thing. And Winifred's like, you know, dost thou comprehend? And Mary just does what she normally does, where she just kisses up to Winnie. Sarah says, Sarah has no idea what Winnie's even talking about. So Winifred just takes a moment and then she says, come, we fly. And from that point, we go back to the graveyard. Now, in the original script... There was supposed to be a flashback here of Binks's life, like a sort of quick montage of him seeing his whole family die and like him living through the ages and everything. But that was only in the script. It was never, never made it to filming. Instead, what we see is Binks explaining that he is immortal. Because of me, my little sister's life was stolen. For years, I waited for my life to end so I could be reunited with my family. But Winifred's curse of immortality kept me alive. Then one day I figured out what to do with my eternal life. Now, I'd failed Emily, but I wouldn't fail again. And that he has guarded the house for three centuries. Max makes a comment, three ancient hags versus the 20th century. How bad can it be? It's funny listening to this now, thinking about the 20th century now that we're so far past it. But anyway, one thing, a little bit of trivia here, is that apparently they had eight live cats that they used to portray Binks in various scenes. They were all used for different things. They were trained for different sorts of things. So at this point, they try to burn the book. Max uses the lighter to try to burn Winifred's spell book, but it doesn't work. The fire just sort of just doesn't take... Binks says, you know, I told you it's magic. It's protected by magic. And it's just at this moment that the witches show up on their brooms. Now, they can't set foot in the graveyard, but they can fly over it. And we hear Winifred sort of mocking Mac, saying, (laughs) It's just a bunch of hocus pocus! And the witches try to sort of fly down and attack all of our good guys here. One thing I would like to mention, if we go to the book, the Strasser book, on page 48, this is a really important detail that was cut from the movie. I mentioned before that Allison appeared to have a little bit of a witchy look to her when she had her cloak on in that school scene. Well... This is from the book. Sarah flies in front of Allison, and Allison beats her back with a branch. And that's where we pick up right here. So Allison says, take a hike, Allison shouted at her. Max turned and smiled at Allison, who looked away. She's jealous, Winifred said. And isn't she pretty? Almost as pretty as her ancestor, little Elizabeth Podbury, the good witch. Good to the very last bite, Mary cried, licking her lips. The witches cackled with wicked glee. 
So in the script, Allison actually has a good witch ancestor, which explains a lot of stuff in the movie where she seems to be drawn to the book or to the magic. And I don't know why they cut that because it was a really good detail for Allison's character. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Allison has clear knowledge of, again, we're jumping ahead, but she knows how to dispose of witches. She knows how to prevent witches from coming. And yeah, that would be good to know. That'd be very good to know. It's it's at this point that Winifred tries to call for her book. It starts levitating up toward her, but Binks jumps on top of it and it's not able to get off the ground. So Winifred decides to use a spell to bring back Billy from his grave. Uh, she recites the spell. Unfaithful lover long since dead, deep asleep in thy wormy bed. Wiggle thy toes, open thine eyes, twist thy fingers toward the sky. Life is sweet, be not too shy. <laughs> On thy feet, so say I. Yeah! Ground shakes. All the tombstones are moving. There's a moment of calm, and then all of a sudden, Billy just undertaker style just sits up right in his grave busts through the coffin and the earth and it goes flying and he sits up and he kind of looks around he looks really confused he looks over at his gravestone and he kind of makes this disappointed uh, sound when he realizes that he's dead because he's reading it on the stone so he sort of grunts and tries to kind of get up out of the grave. Winifred is yelling at him to chase after the kids and get the book. One thing we see is that his date of death on the stone was the 1st of May, 1693. So the witches must have been hung not that long after uh, Winifred decided to do away with Billy. We can see when Billy gets up that he is happy to see Sarah. He looks up at her and he's clearly like giving her some eye. And Winifred is not happy about that. She starts yelling at him even more to get up. And so he goes and chases after the kids. Binks leads them into this entrance underneath of the graveyard into sort of like a catacombs tunnel area. And they all slide down in there, except for Max, who pulls back a tree branch and uses it to knock Billy's head off. And this is the first of many times where this happens, where his head rolls off onto the ground and Max then jumps down after the other good guys. Uh, Winnie is not happy. She says, cheese and crust, he's lost his head. And she basically uh, has a tantrum uh, and commands Billy to chase after them as she flies away. So in the catacombs, uh, this sort of cuts back and forth between the good guys down there and then the witches outside. And we see everybody, you know, Banks leading everyone down through this tunnel. But then it goes back to the witches who have now landed on their brooms outside of the graveyard. Mary is saying that she can't smell anything. And so Winnie has her by the ear and she's clearly upset with her. If you look in the background, you can see Sarah randomly just hanging off of the gate to the graveyard and swinging around. So Mary says that they need to have a calming circle. Wait, sisters, I have an idea. Since this promises to be a most dire and stressful evening, 
I suggest we form a calming circle. I am calm! Oh, sister, thou art not being honest with thyself, are we? Huh? Huh? Come on. Then we see Billy in the catacombs, kind of, he's now in there. Um, this is actually an extended scene. They cut that part out, but in the extended features, you see Billy in the catacombs sort of stumbling around. And then we see the good guys continuing to walk through. Back outside, now that they've finished their cal- calming circle, a bus pulls up. And we get the bus driver. Now, this guy's name is Don Yeso. And he is awesome. I actually spoke to him on Facebook. I messaged him. Uh, I was able to get a uh, an autograph from him. I sent, I you know sent him the money he wanted for it, and then he mailed it over to me. So I have an autograph from the busboy himself. That's wild. It's pretty great, actually. I, I'm a big fan. Now, this is a scene when you're a kid, probably goes right over your head. It's not that interesting. Watching it as an adult, it's one of my favorite scenes. It has some of the best quotes. You'll see on the bus, it says Salem Bus Lines, serving the witch city, which is actually the uh, nickname that they use in Salem, the witch city. As the bus driver opens the door, the first thing he says, Bubble, bubble, I'm in trouble. Winifred um, is clearly a little bit, I don't know if I want to say embarrassed, but she's sort of like a little bit flirtatious in a way. She's sort of looking up at the the bus man and she asks what the purpose of the of this thing is. And he says, to convey gorgeous creatures such as yourselves to your most forbidden desires. He's pretty young and good looking here. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not he's not like some old dude. I mean, he's probably in his 30s or 40s here, right? Agreed, agreed. And uh, Winifred comes back with, we desire children. And he says, Hey, that may take me a couple of tries, but I don't think that'd be a problem. At that point, they get onto the bus, and there is an extended scene here where he asks for money. He says, I need some kind of payment, por favor. And the witches look at each other, and what happens, and this sort of explains later why in the theatrical release, all of a sudden Sarah is just sitting on the bus driver's lap. What happened was Winifred and Mary pushed her toward him when he said that he needed some kind of payment for the bus ride. And she says in this extended scene, perhaps you would care for a small token of my affection. And then she sits on his lap. So that's why that is happening. Well, I mean, they want to eat children. He wants to make children. So that's the dichotomy there. (laughs) So Sarah is now riding on his lap. And we cut back down Max and the good guys. They finally found a ladder that can lead them back up out of the catacombs. We see Sarah driving the bus. We see Max lifting the grate to get out, and Binks jumps out right away to immediately get run over by the bus. Now, um, on the bus, I don't even think Sarah realized that she ran over him. She just thinks that it's a speed bump. She starts honking the horn and saying, speed bump, speed bump. We go back and we see um, Max and Danny in particular, Allison, they're 
broken up because they see Banks all flattened on the road. But then he reinflates, which I always thought was an awesome effect, how he just inflates back. He makes this really good, like, sort of breathing effect. And he inflates back up again, and he gets up and just shakes it off. And he's like, I hate it when that happens. What? I told you I can't die. Danny, you all right? Yeah. Okay, then let's go. We go back to the bus. And they finally are at their stop. Uh, Mary yells stop because she smells something. And so Sarah and the bus driver like slam on the brakes and the bus stops. The bus driver tries to get Sarah's number, but Winifred sort of blocks him and he calls her a party pooper. And then they get off the bus and Sarah waves and says, farewell, mortal bus boy. And that is the end of the bus scene. One of the greatest scenes in the film. Yeah. You know, looking back, it's a very adult scene. And other than that, you know, without expounding upon that, um, I've seen that before. I think, I think maybe it was in Casper with regard to like inflating the dead body of Binks kind of brought me back to that, but yeah, Binks is immortal. Don't got to worry about that. So now the witches are in front of a random neighborhood, and the reason that Mary smelled children was because all the kids are out trick-or-treating. One of my favorite moments in the film right here is the witches are standing on the street watching all these, to their eyes, creatures go by, which are actually just kids in costumes. And out of nowhere, this angel, this girl dressed as an angel, walks up to them and curtsies, and she says, Bless you. And then they scream, and Sarah in particular lets out this just horrified, just the most terrified scream I've ever heard in my life. Like, she she looks like she is just, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to her. It's, it's amazing. They end up seeing this guy dressed up in a devil suit, and they go up to him thinking that he's their master. He invites them in. He says, come into the non-smoking section. Pretty good line, I would say. And they go inside. Now, we'll see more about the master and his house in a little bit. There is a brief scene where the kids try to tell a police officer about what has happened. Uh, This police officer, however, is actually a random dude named Eddie who decides to play a joke on the kid. He thinks they're playing a joke on him saying that they brought the witches back to life. And he acts like he's a real cop. He tells him to get out of there, take the cat with him. We see his date come out of a store and get on his bike. Hey, I put my life on the line to protect this community. And you punks pull this. Get out. Take that cat with you. Funny, Eddie. Ah, just a bunch of kids pulling my chain. I thought I was a real cop. (laughs) And then they drive away, and we get a brief scene of the cop, quote, the cop, running over Billy's fingers as he was trying to get out of the sewer, and his fingers fall off, and he makes some very sad noises as the bike continues on. Isn't this a crime? Like, you can't dress up as a police officer. I mean, this was terrible. And he even went so far as to say, like, 
I risked my life for the community. And it's like, come on, man. Arrest this guy, throw him in prison. Oh, scum of the earth here. It does help explain why in the rest of the movie they never try to go for help from the police. So I do like that they gave it an explanation. Uh, so then we go to the master's house. Um, this scene isn't terribly important like for the actual story, but it just has a lot of good comedy in it. And I've always really enjoyed it. He says, the master says when they go in, I want you to meet the little woman. And Winifred has this line where she looks at the other sisters and she says, he has a little woman. And she's sort of doing this thing with her hands. Like she expects to see like this miniature woman appear, which I thought was pretty funny. His wife is actually a, a quote Medusa. You know, she has these curlers in and she looks sort of like a Medusa. The actors here that play the devil and his wife, are actually Penny and Gary Marshall, uh, and they are siblings in real life, which is interesting. I didn't look up a ton about Gary. I do know that Penny used to be on an old sitcom called Laverne and Shirley back in the day that I think was what she was mainly known for. We see outside that these random kids that are actually dressed up like the Sanderson sisters take their brooms, which were left outside by the gate, and they kind of whoosh off. So the implication is that these kids are actually flying on these magic brooms. We go back in, and we see Sarah dancing very closely with the master. Now Winnie, meanwhile, is in the kitchen, which she thinks is a torture chamber, and she's going around like picking up the mallets and looking at the oven, and clearly is loving it. Mary is watching this random commercial, which was actually a real commercial back in 1993. And she's really into it. She's like screaming at the TV, holding the remote, totally into it. Eventually, uh, the master's wife comes down and sees that Sarah's dancing, gets really upset. That's it, party's over! Get out of my house! He says... They call me master. He's clearly really into it. But the wife gets their dog, Ralph, who is dressed like a hellhound, to chase them out of the house. Yeah, and so as you mentioned, this guy's dressed as Satan, the devil. So I think that's important because it will play into other things. But it's clear that the Sanderson sisters are associated with the devil. They work with Satan. They're evil. They love hell. And so that's an, that's an, this is their first time understanding kind of where they're at. Well, I will note that Allison, um, when they're going through the house, mentions that the spell book was given to Winifred by the devil and that it was bound in human flesh. So we do get a little bit of a hint earlier. But actually, you know, this would be common assumption for back in the 1600s for people who actually believed in witchcraft just to be clear the people that were actually victimized in the salem witch trials were not actually witches they were people who were outcasts of the society they were accused of witchcraft but it wasn't actually happening but the thing here is that uh, that was believed by puritans by people who believed in witches that persecuted witches they believed that it was a pact with the devil. Yeah, that's how you got magic powers. And you would often also have a familiar, some sort of animal creature 
that would help you do your bidding that would also suck off of a part of your body for nourishment. So whenever they were searching for witches, they would often search their bodies for markings that could be sucklings of familiars. So that all sort of tracks with the idea of them having a deal with the devil. Now, after they get chased out of the master's house, we have a deleted scene. And you can see part of this if you have the 25th anniversary DVDs. Basically, what happens is that Winifred starts calling the kids. They unmask when they go outside. They un- and this happens in the in the actual movie. They unmask one of the kids, and they see that they're not actually goblins or whatever. You know, they're just kids dressed up. Winifred calls them greedy little beggars, and this is in the extended scene. She says, "Greedy little beggars, we will give them candy." And what happens is that it leads into this whole subplot where the witches go and make candy crows that they give out to the children that draw them in to their spell. And there's a whole part in the book on pa- that I've been reading from, the Todd Strasser book on page 63, that discusses this whole thing. Danny started to pet Binks. Oh yeah, Binks groaned in delight. That feels great. Now do my other ear. Oh yes, my tummy. That's great. Max felt a tug on his sleeve. Allison was pointing at two girls coming toward them. They were both dressed as ballerinas and were sucking on stick candies. They're my neighbors, Allison said. I think we better start telling kids to stay off the streets. You really think they'll listen to us? Max asked. Well, we can try, Allison said, running toward the girls. Hey, Cindy. Hey, Donna. The girls didn't respond. They seemed to be in a daze. Allison stepped right in front of one of them. Cindy? Oh, uh, hi, Allison, Cindy mumbled and held the candy out. You should try this. It's really great candy. Allison took the candy and the girls started to walk away. It's shaped like a crow, Max said, joining her. Hearing that, Binks ran over. It's the same candy that they gave my sister before they stole her life. Allison spun around and yelled, Hey, Cindy, where'd you get this? In the park up the hill, Cindy replied without turning around. I bet the witches made this, Binks said. Max caught Allison's eye. I have a feeling it's too late to tell kids to stay off the streets. We better see what's going on, Binks said. They ran up the hill and hid behind some trees. The Sanderson sisters were 30 feet away in a small park surrounded by children. Trick or treat, Sarah said cheerfully as she gave out the crow-shaped candies. Trick or treat. The children pressed eagerly around the witches. Gimme some, they cried. Gimme, gimme. Stop pawing me, you little brats, Winifred snapped. Remember to share with thy neighbors, Mary said. You're ugly, a kid said to Winifred. The witch angrily shoved a piece of candy into his mouth. Eat this, she said. Behind the trees, Max and the others watched as the kids gobbled up the candy. Wow, (laughs) wow. But I'm not done yet. There is a trailer, and I remember this, okay? I watched this preview of Hocus Pocus before I went to see the movie, And there were a couple scenes in the trailer that didn't make the cut into the movie. And in one of the brief little scenes in the trailer, 
you can and you can look this up on YouTube. You can see Mary drinking what looks to be dish soap out of a bottle. And then she, there's a moment where she's standing in front of a kid who is holding like a box of sugar. And Winifred comes over and grabs Mary by the ear and says, we have no time for snacking and pulls her away. So this grocery store scene was supposed to be them buying ingredients to make the candy crows, but they cut that all out of the movie. Pretty wild. This might be one of the biggest changes to the plot of the movie because they eliminated the whole idea of the candy crows, which was there the whole way up until not only when they wrote this book, but even when the first trailer went out. So they must have filmed some of these scenes relating to the crow storyline before it was cut from the film. Wow. I mean, that might be too scary, man, because it's like, I remember growing up as a kid, you were worried about like the razor blades in candy. And so every piece of candy, you were like, is this poisoned? Is there razor blades? And I think in this movie, man, that would totally work. And so they're like, that's too scary. Plain and simple. Instead, they do the song. What a powerful scene that is. It also kind of harkens to like the the guy in the truck who's like, hey, come get your candy. <laughs> and he abducts you or whatnot. These are, those are some very, as a parent, very real things, very real fears. And so... As an adult, I want them in, but I see why they probably cut them because that's horrifying, to be honest. It's like <laughs> every piece of candy is this, is it sugar-coated with a poison? Oh, no. Dark to think about for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's it's a really good, yeah, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. And um, I think part of it may have just been like cutting for time and everything to like make the script like flow better, but. Yeah, I think it would have been too scary. Um, I feel like in the 90s, I feel like that was a constant thing where parents were like, you got to check the candy, you got to like be careful. I I just remember that all the time. So this scene in the real, in the theatrical movie just ends with, uh, you know, Winifred making a comment about how All Hallows Eve has become a night of frolic. And she mentions the kids running amok. And then, of course, Sarah says, and then she gets elbowed right in the chest, which is probably one of my favorite uh, little moments. One of my favorite quotes, just her yelling amok over and over again. So that brings us to the party at the Salem Town Hall. Uh, This is a real place in Salem, the old town hall. It's from 1816. It's another place that I visited and actually went by not just on my own, but then later on when we went on a ghost walk of the town, they took us to this location as well. But the old town hall isn't actually used as a town hall anymore. It's kind of a tourist spot, kind of used for little events and things that they will put on. This is where the party is happening for all the adults in town. We go in there, it's an epic party. Like, the costumes are epic. We have this band up on stage. It's it's rockin'. We see um, Max's dad. They, they're going there to try to find their parents. When Max finds his dad, his dad corrects him and says, It's not dead. It's dead, Tula. Which, of course, is a great dad joke. Danny finds her mother, uh, who is dressed like Madonna. 
uh, when Danny tries to tell her what's happening. This cat here, Binks, right? He can talk. My brother's a virgin. He lit the black flame candle. The witches are back from the dead, and they're after us. We need help. How much candy have you had, honey? Mom, I haven't OD'd. I haven't even had a piece. The real witches, they can fly, and they're going to eat all the kids in Salem. They're real. All right. Let's just find your father. They all get together. They're kind of arguing about what's happening. The parents clearly don't believe them. We hear while this is going on up on stage, the singer who is dressed like a skeleton, he starts singing, I put a spell on you as the witches are entering into the venue. Uh, Prior to that, he was singing the song Witchcraft, which of course is a well-known Frank Sinatra song. But at this point, he transitions over to I put a spell on you. And it sort of camera goes right to Winifred is, and she sort of looks at him like, oh, really? You put a spell on me? I don't believe it. Max goes up on the stage to try to warn everybody about the witches, but they all, the, all the adults take it as a joke. And Winifred plays into it. And then, of course, we get Bette Midler. Of course, you have Bette Midler in a film she's going to sing starts to perform I Put a Spell on You, which might be the most iconic thing from the movie. I put a spell on you. And now you're mine. <laughs> you can't stop the things I do. I ain't lying. No! No! Don't look at him! Been 300 years, right down to the day. Now the witch is back! And there's hell to pay. <laughs> I put a spell on you. Good joke. Happy Halloween. Thanks a lot. No, man, and I'm serious. You got to have me. I'm not kidding. You have to have me. And basically, she puts a spell on all of the adults and forces them to dance. She says, Dance! Dance! Dance until you die! (laughs) And the idea here is that all the adults are now under the spell. Um, We also see Billy coming through as he's continuing to pursue the kids. Um, They get away and they run out to the outside of the hall. When they are outside, they go into this back alley and hide. Max tries to convince Allison to take Danny with her, but she won't leave Max. And the witches um, come out, almost find them. Sarah's just about to find them, but Winnie calls her away, because she doesn't trust Sarah with anything, calls her away, and Allison accidentally slams down this door of an oven that she was hiding behind. But it gives her an idea. And we're going to see that idea play out in the school. Yeah, so this, I mean, it must be one of the greatest cuts of all time in terms of transitioning into a song. Because she's actually putting a spell on them in the song. But everyone's, you know, Max goes up there. and He basically is like, 
fear monger, fear monger, fear monger, these witches, these witches. And she's like, ah, <laughs> I'm not putting a spell on you. But she pretends she is. And they're, you know, it's like a joke. Like, of course, I'm putting a spell on you, except she actually is. And I hearken back to basically like Satan. Because again, that's their master is Satan, the devil. We saw that in that previous scene. And it reminds me of that quote of like the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And this scene is very, it basically sums that up because everyone's dancing and enjoying it, thinking they're having a good time, not knowing they're actually partaking in the spell. Obviously, you know, I drew parallels with sin here in terms of people enjoying things, not realizing they're sinning because it's the cool thing to do. They're not technically sinning by just dancing, but to me, it was very iconic of Satan and his ability to manifest himself in a way where people don't know he's there. And here, this was completely apparent. No one had any idea what he was doing and it worked perfectly. So I, I thought it was a brilliant scene for that. I don't know if I, like you said, I don't know if I've ever seen, because clearly they wanted to shoehorn in a song. Because, like, Bette Midler was like, I have to sing a song that's going to happen. And they found the perfect way to not shoehorn it, but to make it an organic part of the plot of the movie, which I think is fascinating. I mean, it's it's really great. So you mentioned Bette Midler singing. What other movies, shows, etc. are you referencing? with her singing in them because I'm, I'm not too familiar with her as an actress. So I'm curious about what you're talking about. Uh, Bette Midler, I think was better known maybe as a singer. I mean, in many ways, I mean, she was also quite an actress, but she uh, was in a lot of plays. Um, she did a number of um, off Broadway and Broadway. She was in Fiddler on the Roof Um she did all kinds of like stage productions and I can't exactly, I don't know all like all of her different credits, but like her background is like as a singer, like she was, she was involved in heavy like musical production and everything. The second part I want to bring up is the lyrics at the end. And I'm like, my mind's boggled about this, but it's like, I say it's a pie up a baby up and die. <laughs> Whatever that is, I I don't know. And I've tried, I've, I've researched this to try to figure out exactly what they're talking about. To me, all I could come up with is basically like, they talk about pie and die. I get pie, like maybe you're baking the kids into a pie and die. I, that's, you know, I was like, okay, that's fine. But is there actually any meaning behind that that I'm missing? Because I, I was like, I, I could not find the exact meaning behind that segment of the song. Well, the song wasn't written for um, the movie. It actually goes back to 1956. Uh, it was a song written by someone named uh, Screamin' Jay Hawkins. And it was written and composed by him. So this is actually a cover. And I think they just picked it because it had, you know, it was magical, magical sort of theme 
I don't really know where the lyrics came from. They're really strange lyrics. I I think maybe the lyrics are meant to sound like um like a spell, like sort of these nonsense sort of words that like you're casting the spell. That'd be my guess. Yeah, good point though. I mean, that's it's a really strange it's the lyrics are weird. Like if you haven't looked them up, I, I like I think people should take a look at them. Yeah, they're for sure weird, but you're right with this it sounds like a chant of some sort. So that brings us over to Jacob Bailey High School. This is actually not the real name of the school. It's named Phillips Elementary School, and they actually stopped using it in 1992. So by the time that they were filming this, it was just an empty property. So uh, they used it as Max's high school. Um, this is also an actual like Salem location that you can, can visit as well. So when the witches arrive at the school... Mary says, It reeks of children. It is a prison for children. Which I thought was funny. There's a deleted scene uh, where a small part of it is also in that same trailer that I mentioned earlier, where Mary and Sarah knock Winifred into the swimming pool. And then when she gets out, she electrocutes them in order to dry herself off. But that was a part that with her like lightning skills but that was a part that was cut from the film. So another comedic uh, moment there, deleted scene. In that trailer, you can see a brief second where they're at a pool, and Mary and Sarah point at each other and say, she did it. But you don't actually um, see anything else of that. So Max is on the PA system. Welcome to high school hell. I'm your host, Boris Karloff Jr. (laughs) Of course, Boris Karloff, famous actor from the Universal Horror Cinema days. We see here um, that they end up luring the witches into essentially, I guess, like an oven that would be used for pottery or something like that. Um, This large furnace sort of thing. They lure them in with this French cassette which is just speaking French, um, like a French lesson. Uh, they lure them in, close them in, hit the button, and the flames come up. Winifred is trying to blow out the flames. The kids celebrate as the witches go up in smoke. We see the smoke going out of the chimney, and the kids are seen outside uh, cheering, celebrating. Uh, there's this really cool shot of Binks in a tree, where the moon is right behind him, sort of like circled around his head. And Max is talking to him about uh, how he still blames himself for his sister's death. I've wanted to do that for 300 years. (laughs) Since they took Emily. You really miss her, don't you? Man, you can't keep blaming yourself for that. That happened so long ago. Take good care of Danny, Max. You'll never know how precious she is until you lose her. Yeah, it's 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 a tearjerker here. Um, while they're talking, Allison and Danny are celebrating still, and they're over by this fountain. The fountain you may have recognized because it is the same fountain that is in the opening shot of Friends in the uh, theme music of Friends. This is in California on the Warner Brothers ranch uh, lot. 
and so it is not in Salem. Uh, Max basically tells Binks that he's a denizen now, and he's going to live with them, and so they head over to Max's house. I want to talk a little bit about this like pottery thing. It's a, a kiln, and why would Allison... So she saw that oven you mentioned closing, and that made her have an idea. So in this high school, she knew that something in this high school would allow them to trigger this oven. And she knew about the kiln. Is there anything about her character that was like, was was she an artist? Did she use pottery? Like, is there any connection as to why she knew in this high school, there was this, this fire chamber of some sort. I mean, she may have, I don't, it doesn't say she may have taken the class. She may have just heard about it. I think it was just simply that the oven gave her the idea to burn them. And so she must've just realized that that was there. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think we had a class like that at my school, but maybe we did and I didn't know about it. I went to a pretty big school, so I didn't really know all the ins and outs of every corner of it. But yeah, I'm just going to assume it was common knowledge that the class existed. But I mean, I, I think you're... That kind of room seems dangerous to me. Like a room that you can close <laughs> and it like sets fire to the entire room. I'm like, I don't. I, I have no context for that. So I was like... I, I paid special attention to that because I had no idea what that could possibly be. And yeah, I assume she was an artist of some sort, but yeah, I was like, how is this a thing? But she knew it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of wild, but I could see it like in an old school, they might've had something like that. I didn't realize that the fountain was the friend's fountain until like a few years ago. And that's sort of like a big trivia fact with Hocus Pocus now is that the fountain is the same. I love that scene with Max and Binks. Uh, It's really heartfelt. And I love that Max offers to take Binks home with him. And we can see, you know, in the next scene. And I will say, too, when I was watching this as a kid in the movie theater... I was really upset um, at this part because I thought the movie was over. You know, I thought the witches were dead. I thought this was the ending. And I remember thinking, man, this can't be it. It can't be over already. Thankfully, it's not. So we go over. Wait, wait, (laughs) you wanted the witches to live? You wanted them to, to be alive? Is that what you're saying right now? I guess in a roundabout way, yeah. I mean, I just I just didn't want the film to be over. I wanted more movie, you know. I wasn't ready for it to be over cuz like it was it was the best thing I'd ever seen, you know, and it still is. So, but if we go over to Max's house, his parents aren't home. There's a funny line where Danny comes in with Binks and she says, "We got a new cat, Mom." And I sort of wonder what you would do if your if your daughter came in and said, we've got a new cat, and she just is holding it there. But there's a special feature here that says that they used six different animatronic cats along with CGI to get Binks to do different stuff that he does, which is really a technical achievement. But Danny is basically talking about how she's going to spoil Binks, turn him into a house cat. You're my kitty now. You'll have milk and tuna fish every day, and you'll only hunt mice for fun. You're going to turn me into one of those fat, useless, contented house cats. <laughs> you bet you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, Binks, I'll always take care of you. My children will take care of you, too. And their children after that. 
And there's, after that, forever, ever, Danny and Binks fall asleep in Max's bed. Max and Allison fall asleep shoulder to shoulder, sharing a blanket on the steps, sort of looking toward Danny. They all seem to think that everything is is over with. We see a cutaway to the school, where the smoke re-enters into the chimney, and the door falls open uh, to the kiln, and Winifred and her sisters walk out, kind of smoky, and Winifred says, Hello. I want my book. Bonjour. Je veux mon livre. And she's speaking in French because of the cassette that uh, was playing. So you mentioned Danny and Binks, and the line is Thackeray. He's basically lamenting the fact that he will be a fat, useless, contented house cat. That's basically a pet, right? What are your thoughts on Thackeray lamenting being a domesticated cat as opposed to being out in the wild and free? I didn't really take it as a real lament. I I think he was sort of teasing Danny because I think they were teasing each other a little bit because he was like, oh, you're going to turn me into those one of those useless, you know, contented house cats. And I think he was sort of like teasing about the idea that, oh, now he's just going to be a pet. But I think he was into the idea. I think as far as like if he has to keep living, I think he wants to be with Danny. She's she's his adopted sister. Clearly, you know, he he's thinking of Danny as Emily. And I think that's sort of the crux of their relationship, I would I would say. Did you take it differently? No, I see. I see that he's being facetious. And he wants that, you know, as opposed to whatever life he was living for the last 300 years. You know, he probably liked the fact that Danny promised to treat him as a pet and love him and cuddle with him. I think he probably liked that. Now, this is a great scene because we we cut away now to Jay and Ice. And they're just sitting on a car, like talking about stuff that they can do. They, They can't think of anything. It's too late now. And they're just sitting around. Ernie mentions that he doesn't feel good. Um, Jay says it's because he's eating too much candy. And then out of nowhere, Mary just shoves her face into Ernie's shoes. And he says, yo, witch, get your face off my shoe. And then, and she's like, oh, sorry. And Winifred says, why? Why was I cursed with such idiot sisters? And Sarah says, just lucky, I guess. As they're about to walk off, Jay insults them and says, Oh man, how come it's always the ugly chicks that stay out late? And so this leads to another cutaway where Jay and Ice are now suspended from cages in the Sanderson house. And (laughs) uh, Winifred, meanwhile, is trying to figure out what her spell is because she can't, she doesn't have the book. She's like, let's do it from memory. She's trying to remember the one ingredient of the dead man's toe. Remember, remember, remember what you remember, remember. And Sarah blurts it out right away. She says, dead man's toe. And Winifred completely ignores her. 
and just starts trying to think of other stuff and Mary's trying to help her. But like Sarah knew all along what the ingredient was, but of course Winifred just ignores her entirely and continues trying to think of it. So Sarah being ignored decides to go over and just like torture Ernie and Jay. She starts like twirling the cages around. So meanwhile, uh, Winifred is like desperate. She pushes open the window of the cottage and yells out for the book. And she starts crying uh, because she doesn't know what to do. We're getting close to daybreak at this point. We go back over to the house and the book opens its eye when Winifred starts calling for it. Max and Allison wake up and Allison says, oh, I have to get out of here. It turns out it's actually five o'clock. Little fact, uh, sunrise in Salem on November the 1st, 1993 would have been at 6.17 a.m. So we have an hour and 17 minutes until sunrise. Max and Allison decide to open up the book because they want to help Binks. They are thinking, man, he's still trapped as a cat. Allison, in particular, wants to open the book, and she says, The witches used it to put the spell on him. Maybe there's a way in here to take it off. Mm, no, Binks told us not to open it. Well, the witches are dead. What harm could it do? And Max is like, well, be careful. This is showing, again, her connection to that an- that witch ancestor that she had that you wouldn't know about if you weren't listening to the podcast right now. When they open the book, a light shoots off like this big beacon of light, and Winifred sees it immediately. And so that's sort of where we'll head next. Yeah, it's clear Winifred needs the book. And I love the fact that they didn't like use a random MacGuffin for that to happen. And so in this scene in particular, you mentioned them wanting to use the book and open it, right? That's from Allison. Allison's the one that wants to bring Banks back to peace. She feels sympathy for him. It's not for Max. Why does Max want to open the book? For Allison. Remember, they're they're together at this moment, right? They wake up together. Max wants to please Allison. And so he's trying to be his, you know, he's trying to be her boyfriend, essentially. And he's like, we shouldn't do this because Binks told us not to, but you're the activist here, so we'll do it. And so in opening the book, it's Allison wanting to help Binks, right? That makes sense. It's Max wanting to support Allison, which makes sense. And then it leads to this beam of light, right? That makes sense for Winifred to find the book. Obviously, Winifred has to find the book. That's what they need to do in the movie. But I love the layers they added here so that every single motive of the characters was was spelled out so you knew exactly why this had happened. I'm really glad you mentioned Max and Allison kind of waking up together. There's this book that I would highly recommend. It's called Hocus Pocus and Focus, and it is by Aaron Wallace, with a foreword by Thora Birch, Danny. 
And it's basically a collection of essays about Hocus Pocus, like analysis of it. And I remember one of these essays has an interesting idea. When Sarah sings the Come Little Children, why doesn't it affect Max or Allison? And the thing that they supposed in here was that it only works on people who are innocent. And Max and Allison waking up together is kind of like symbolic, right? Because now they're like a couple or what have you. So I thought that was an interesting kind of theory. This leads to a very well-known scene as well, because when Winifred sees the book's beacon go up, she decides that they need to obviously go get it, so they're out of brooms. So they go into the closet. There's one broom. Winifred takes it, of course. Sarah gets a mop. All right, close enough. Mary comes out on the vacuum. Classic. Just classic. Oh, man. They head off toward the house. We see Binks now jumping from the bed onto the book. We were just trying to help you. Well, don't. Nothing good can come from this book. You got it? Which again plays with the fact that we know it was gifted from the devil, of course, before. So Allison puts the book down. We see a cut of Winifred cutting one of the screens of the window with her nail. And then we go back again and we see Max and Allison going downstairs because Allison wants some salt to take home with her. And again, this shows her knowledge of this sort of magic. They also notice their parents are still gone. They go into the cupboard. They find the salt. Allison is looking at the salt and she says, uh, It says form a circle of salt to protect from zombies, witches, and old boyfriends. And Max says, what about new boyfriends? They almost kiss, but of course they hear a noise upstairs and they run up to see what is going on. I feel I feel, I feel for Max here. It's like, come on, man. Denied. In terms of the salt, what is the purpose of salt with regard to witches, witchcraft, etc.? Yeah, I can't go into great detail on it, but I just know that salt is a typical defense against spirits like if you make a circle of salt it's meant to be like a barrier i don't know exactly why it works supposedly but it's like an old folk magic traditional type of thing so that's just i guess something allison knows about in this case i mean salt is na right so nah right like nah get out of here i mean that's kind of, <laughs> i mean to me that makes the most sense, right? I mean, okay. that's got to be the scientific explanation for it. I think that's ironclad. I, yeah, certain, no doubt. I think that Allison and Max in this scene, I really do feel for them, too. That's such, like, a classic um, stereotype, especially in, like, Disney movies or kid movies, where it's like they almost kiss but don't quite. Interestingly enough, there's a different twist on the ending that I'll explain when we get there that might relate to that, too, but... So they go upstairs to investigate the sound. They see immediately that the book is gone. Max goes over to the bed where Danny was and pulls the covers off. And Sarah pops out at him. Mary and Winifred emerge from the closet holding Danny in the book. And Max screams, totally freaks out. Winifred opens the book, blasts him with like an energy ball of some sort, like Dragon Ball Z style. Just blasts him. And he flies back into his drum set and collapses on the ground. 
Allison steps over him and starts like flinging the salt around them as into a circle. And again, this is a really good hint as to Allison's true family background because Winifred says, What a clever little white witch. Whenever she's making the salt circle. Wow. I mean, that's so obvious. Yeah. So this movie, this wasn't a long movie. It was like two hours. It's like, put that in there, man. Yeah. It's, um, I, I could be wrong. I think the runtime is like about 90 minutes. So, I mean, there, yeah, they could have definitely added the stuff in. Yeah. So the runtime is, you know, 90 minutes, 96, but somewhere within there. So yeah, it's like an hour and a half. They, they could have definitely put more of this in there. Okay. So at this point, the witches like literally explode out of the top of Max's house, going to fireball, blow the roof off and fly out with Danny in the book. One thing I should mention is that Max's house is another Salem location, at least the exterior of it. I've been there. It's amazing. It's right down by the sea. So right down the road there, right down from the house. And the house, it looks great. It still looks exactly the same. That cool little room that Max has with that top part with the stairs that lead up to it. It's all there. It's really awesome. Highly would recommend uh, making the pilgrimage. Just don't bother the people who live there. There's like actually like normal people who just live in that house and people are constantly walking down there and taking pictures with it. So I saw the people when I was down there, they were on the porch and I said hi to them, the people who live in Max's house. So now we get a really important moment where Sarah sings the Come Little Children song. I love this song. It's so haunting. It's pretty, but in like a twisted kind of way. Also, I you know Sarah Jessica Parker, I think, does a pretty good job with it as far as the vocal performance uh, as well. After the song, while she's singing the song, and the kids of the town start migrating toward the Sanderson's cottage, Allison finally has this realization where she says the black flame candle only brought them back for this one Halloween night. And so they realize that they only have to outlast them until sunup. Yeah. The come little children, man. Like that's to me, that's the, my heart will go on from Titanic. Like they built that up from the beginning. Cause she even says it in the beginning without singing it. And so we get to hear it in its full glory here. And I'm like, oof. That's powerful, man. Very strong. There was another part. I'm not going to read it, but there's another part in the book here that Max is and Allison are in the car trying to get there. And in, in the movie, they show them sort of trying to drive through this crowd of kids. They're honking, driving really slow, trying to get through the crowd so they can get the truck to the Sanderson house. But in the book... In the novelization, there's a whole conversation with the two of them where Max clearly doesn't quite know how to drive because he never got his driver's permit yet. So it's sort of like a comedic moment between the two of them, but that's not in the movie. Well, it's especially true because Max, with the trick or treat you mentioned, was not able to get his car. He wasn't able to, the dad said, no, you're being a jerk. 
with Danny, no car. So there's punishment. Man. There's so many things that like, I mean, the theatrical version of the movie is an epic classic, which, you know, I fell in love with. But when you know all of these details, it makes it so much better because like there's so much backstory and these deleted scenes are all interesting. Every scene you've said has been awesome and I would want it in the movie, but I get you have a runtime and whatever, but like everything you've said, it all makes sense and adds to the movie and it should be in there, but for theatrical release and whatnot. So yeah, extended edition sounds like a great option here. And it, well, a lot of the stuff that I've mentioned isn't really, doesn't exist. A lot of it's stuff that's in the script, like in the novelization, but they never filmed. There are a few things that they did, which you can see glimpses of in the extended version that I have, but a lot of it just only exists in this book. It's the best that you, that you can get. So then we're in the Sanderson house. Sarah comes back from her flying over the town and singing the song, which again is, is like a really beautiful scene, like the way it's shot with her flying and you can see a, the aerial shot of the town and everything. Really, I don't want to say underrated, but I feel like all the focus goes on to I put a spell on you, which is amazing, but I, I really think this scene is really underrated. It's a beautiful scene, but... We see Danny is tied up. She's on the chair that Emily was in at the beginning. Binks is in a sack over by the fireplace. And Max and Allison are trying to drive through, but they're going really slow because of the crowd of children that's in the way. Jay and Ice still getting tortured. Sarah has like a poker that she's jabbing up through the cage. And Mary's trying to like force feed candy to them. And they're about to hurl. As Winnie is getting the potion ready, because now she has the book, so she's making the potion, Danny has this quote where she says, and I think you'll love this because of the theme that you mentioned before about the devil. Danny says, It doesn't matter how young or old you are. You sold your soul. You're the ugliest thing that's ever lived. And you know it. <sighs> now, this is actually a pivotal moment because this is where Winifred's tragic flaw, her hubris, her extreme pride in herself and in her looks and everything um, is going to cause her to make a critical error because she says, you die first. And it's at this point, after Danny has called her out, that Winifred decides that no matter what, she is going to get Danny. And we're going to see that she has plenty of opportunity to get other kids, but she's not going to do it because of this flaw. Once again, her supposedly stupid sister, Sarah, is the one who points out that they have plenty of kids that they could use, but Winnie is going to ignore her again. So Winifred bites her tongue into the cauldron. It does this really cool effect where it turns green and it bubbles up and you hear this like moaning sound that sounds almost like spirits. Max and Allison arrive at the house and Max busts in just as they're about to make Danny drink the potion. He does the speech about how he has knowledge that they don't. Prepare to die! Again. You! You have no powers here, you fool! Hollywood! Maybe not. But there's a power greater in your magic. And that's knowledge. Come on, man. And there's one thing that I know that you don't. No. And what is that? 
daylight savings time. It's just at that moment that Allison turns on the lights of the truck and the witches freak out and collapse to the ground. Sarah screams out, it hurts! And they all sort of wither and fall to the ground as if they are being destroyed by the sunrise. Max runs over, he gets Danny, he gets Binks. He also, um, the... So Jay and Ice are hanging there in the cages. I absolutely love this part. They're hanging there in the cages, and they're like, Hollywood, help us out, man. Just the fact that they still call him Hollywood, they're still making fun of him, and they think that he's going to let them out. So instead, he takes the shoes off of uh, Ice, and he kind of whimpers and starts to cry a little bit, and Max is like, tubular, and he takes the shoes and walks out. I know some people are like, oh, he should have saved them. I don't care. It's a funny scene with funny characters and they're bullies and they still haven't learned their lesson because they're still calling him Hollywood. No, that's a, that's a highlight for me. I mean, Ernie, and I'll, he's Ernie to me. It's, it's, Jay, like, a, it's, it's like, like a Voldemort situation. You know? yeah, no, you're Ernie yeah. to me. You're not, no, you're Ernie. They deserve it. That's a highlight to me. And so I'm I'm grateful that they were left there. They deserve it. With regard to Danny, and you're right, they focus on her, none of the other kids. And I actually was was curious about why, but what you said really hit. And so I know why now. Because Danny mentions about the ugliness, and that harkens back to Billy. Winnie is still jealous that Sarah was more beautiful. And that cheating happened because Sarah was more beautiful than Winnie. And so she's still mad about that. And so for her, nothing else matters. Let's get revenge. Forget Sarah. In fact, Winnie later will say to sacrifice your life for your sister. Why would you do that? Because in her mind, her sister cheated on her boyfriend, husband, etc. And so I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm like, wow, that completely connects. I'm like... She's still mad about that. How, how would you not be mad about that? She's self-conscious about her beauty. She's mad about Sarah cheating with Billy. This scene encapsulates that to me. So I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm like, that fits completely. Yeah, when I was making these notes, I wrote down that moment when Danny says that to her. I wrote down the word pivotal next to it because that's the moment where Winifred promises her that she will die first. And so you probably like people watch the movie probably wonder, well, why, why does she go after Danny? Why doesn't she just use these other kids? Cause she could have, we'll see in a second, Max pours out the cauldron, but there's a little bit left and they could have just used it on any of the people that were there. But this is why it's because of Winifred's pride and her feelings over, like you mentioned her, her ugliness and everything. So, you know, I think it actually makes a lot of sense. So Max, after he takes the shoes back from Ernie, he kicks the cauldron over. And this is one thing that I'll say for it too, is that like, he did try to save all the kids by kicking over the cauldron. He drives away and then the witches wake up. They're on the ground. They realize they've been tricked again. And the whole relationship between the witches, Bette Midler mentioned in one of these interviews that it was sort of like a female Three Stooges sort of act was what they were going for. And I can definitely see that here. Winifred decides to go after Danny, even though they have plenty of other kids. And look, Winnie, more children are arriving. Come on in. (laughs) 
Winnie, Winnie, we'll make more potion because Winnie, we have the money. We have the time. Besides, I want to get that little rat-faced kid that called me. Oh, oh don't say it, dirty face. Ugly. Ugly. Uh, they're all because all those kids from Sarah's song are at the house now. Plus, Ernie and Jay are there, and Sarah says. We will make more potion because we have the book. And then Winnie's like, nope, we're going to go. We have to get Danny. She called me ugly. She even says that. And I think later on when they're in the graveyard, the scene, when she's about to give Danny the potion, she says, this will teach you to call people ugly. So she mentions it all the time. She puts what's left of the potion in a little vial and they are going to go get Danny. So we see a cutaway of Max driving, and Allison, Danny, Banks, they're all in the car. Winifred catches up to them, and she makes this joke about, hey, I want to see your driver's permit. And that, again, might be like, well, how would she know that? But there were more references to his driving, which we've seen were removed from the final theatrical release here. He manages to kind of knock her into the bushes, and she flies in. And they're able to continue on and get to the cemetery where they were headed. One thing here, there is, uh, it's, I don't think this was ever filmed, but there was a little bit of a storyboard where it showed all three of the witches attacking the car. But in the theatrical release, it's only Winifred that is actually attacking the car. You never see the other two in the scene. So the good guys all arrive at the graveyard. As soon as they get there, as soon as they go in, Billy catches up to Max and he grabs him while the others run away further into the graveyard. He's able to grab this little uh, pocket knife that Max has and he uses it to finally cut his mouth open. This was a practical effect. They actually had tubes of moths and like this dust stuff that Doug Jones put into his actual mouth. And when he cut the threads, he was able to, like, puff these things out into the air. (laughs) So he had real moths and stuff in his mouth. It's a practical effect. It's pretty epic. Winifred shows up as well. You know, they're on their, the witches are on their brooms. And Winnie uh, orders Billy to get Max. And Billy just curses out Winifred. Tell him, you! Bucktooth, mop rhyme, firefly from hell! Ah! I've waited centuries to say that. And he has some great lines here. Max ends up going with Billy. They go together to find the other good guys. At first, Allison and, and the others are going to attack Billy, but Max begs them off and he says, No, he's a good zombie. They end up deciding to put Danny in Billy's grave, and then they surround the grave with salt. The idea being that the witches can't set foot on the hallowed ground, and the salt circle as well should protect her if she stays in there. Binks sees the witches coming, and he yells a warning, and the witches appear in the sky over Billy's grave and in that area. Max had a bat that he brought with him, but unfortunately Winifred is able to grab it right away when he tries to hit her with it, and she throws it down to the ground as she chases Max. Sarah comes at Allison, who throws salt in her face, causing her to sort of do a flip. Winifred then blasts a tree with her lightning, trying to drop it onto Billy, but she sort of, the limb misses him, 
But the two of them have a back and forth until Winifred flies down and kicks Billy's head off, totally just clean off of his neck. Sarah's still coming after Allison, and she's out of salt now, so she has to throw the container down and is trying to dodge Sarah. But the really bad thing here is that Danny is now out of the grave because she's trying to help Billy put his head back on. She gets it and gives it to him, but just at that time, Winifred swoops down and picks Danny up now that she's not protected. And she goes up into the air with her and sort of sets Danny on her broom and pulls out the potion. She's about to try to force Danny to drink the potion. Then this epic moment happens where Binks yells out, Hold on, Danny! And he runs over a gravestone onto a limb of a tree and then launches himself off of it and lands on Winifred. He knocks the potion out of her hand with his paw, but then she's able to grab hold of him and throws him to the ground. And he strikes a rock when he hits the ground and sort of rolls off. At that point, uh, Winifred... Now, at that point, the vial that Binks had knocked out of her hand is falling to the ground, and Max catches it. So Billy here is attacking Winifred, shouts a bunch of negative statements. He's the one that cheated on her with Sarah. Is he justified in doing that? I mean, is is Winifred so bad that it's okay for him to do that? I mean, it, it seems to me like the movie's justifying his actions. I think what it's justifying is that Winifred murdered him. <laughs> um, she poisoned him and then sewed his mouth shut and and murdered him. So I think that's probably why he's angry. <laughs> um, so I'm with I'm with Billy on this one. You know, as far as that part of it goes, anyway. Yeah, it's like even if you messed up, let's talk about it. Let's let's <laughs> you know let's go to counseling. Maybe not poison and shut my mouth shut and kill me just a thought you know <laughs> so max catches the vial and things get really intense because he says put her down or i'll smash it i'll smash it and she dies so max decides all he can do is drink the potion he drinks it himself and then throws down the vial and this forces winifred to come down and take max and she he um she shoves danny off off the, to the ground, grabs Max and says, What a fool to give up thy life for thy sisters. <laughs> so Winifred flies up with Max into the air and he's struggling on the end of the broom, but she's starting to suck at, at his life force as the potion is taking hold. Because though she's struggling with Max, she needs help and Mary tries to fly over to help her, but all the other guys, you know, Billy, Allison, Danny, they grab the cord on Mary's vacuum that she's riding, and they start holding her from going forward. Sarah comes over to help Mary, and then Allison does a classic, like, slingshot thing where she has everyone let go, and the two witches go flying off into the air by the force of it. Winifred is distracted as the two other sisters go flying past her, and she looks up, allowing Max to smack her off of the broom, and so they both fall to the ground and end up crashing into the, the ground of the graveyard. Um, now, this is pretty serious stuff, because as we know, witches can't touch hollowed ground. 
At this moment, Winifred crawls over to Max, pulls him up, and starts sucking at his life force again. But she can tell that she's on this hollowed ground, and she keeps looking down, and we can see that her feet, there's like this mist forming around them, and pretty soon she starts to actually turn to stone. And as she's trying to suck the life out of Max, she fully turns to stone and becomes a statue. And Max sort of like wriggles his shirt, his sweater out, and his falls to the ground. Wasn't Winifred's turning to stone related to the sun coming up based on the new day? So that's what a lot of people think, but the reason she turns to stone is because she's touching the hollowed ground. And the reason I know that is because you can see that that happens before the sun comes up. Because as the sun comes up, what it causes isn't for the other two witches to turn to stone. Something else happens to them. And then the same thing happens to Winifred after the sun is up. So the stone thing is related to being on ground. And then when they explode, that's because of the sun. And so we'll see that here, actually. Because as soon as Winifred turns to stone, she calls for the book. And then the sun comes up. We see Sarah say goodbye, and she explodes into this sort of purple dust. Mary says, Uh-oh. And then she also explodes into dust. And then Winifred, who by now is a statue, explodes as well. So that's why I say that the sun causes them to explode, because the other two didn't turn into statues, and they never touched the ground. So now the witches are dead. They've exploded. Binks, we see a cutaway of Binks, where he lets out a final meow, and then he dies. The good guys are all very excited. Uh, Max and Danny have this really sort of tender brother-sister moment. Billy goes and goes back into his grave and yawns and falls back in, just collapses back in. Danny tells him to have a nice sleep. And Danny, though, at this point, finds Binks and realizes that he's dead. And she starts crying. Wake up, Binks! Binks, wake up! Like last time! <laughs> Please don't be sad for me. Thanks. Is that you? And he says, Danny, please don't be sad for me. My soul is finally free. There's a scene here where uh, this ending actually goes differently in the original script, which I will explain in just a second. But as for the theatrical, Emily's spirit then appears looking for Thackeray. And he looks over and sees her, and you can tell that this is like what he's been waiting for for hundreds of years. But he still bends down and whispers into Danny's ear, I shall always be with you. And then he goes off with Emily, and they go through this gate into the afterlife. And Emily says, That beans, what took thee so long? I'm sorry, Emily. I had to wait 300 years for a virgin to light a candle. Everyone watches as they walk off into the gate. Danny and Max, it sort of focuses in on their faces as they smile, watching the spirits move on. And that's where the story ends, except for the credit sequence, which I will get to. But in the book... 
The ending is a little bit different. What took thee so long? Emily Binks asked in a huff. A moment later, they ran off and vanished. Look over there, Allison pointed toward the street that led past the graveyard. Dozens of sleepy-faced, bewildered-looking kids were walking quickly toward the town. Danny was still wiping the tears out of her eyes when she felt something rub against her leg. Hey, she cried, bending down and picking up the black cat. Binks, can you talk? The cat just meowed. That's okay. Meowing is good. Danny hugged the cat to her chest and turned to Allison and Max. I guess he still had one life left. Max and Allison turned and smiled at each other. Max pulled her close. He almost expected her to turn her head away at the last moment, but this time she didn't. They shared a soft, lingering kiss. So did I make a believer out of you? Allison asked, pulling back and smiling at him. Yeah, you did, Max smiled. I'm glad Allison started to lean toward him for another kiss. Excuse me, you two, Danny said. Can we go home now, please? Sure. Max was so happy, he lifted Danny up so she could ride on his shoulders. You shouldn't have saved my life, Danny told him as she held on to his head, because now I'm going to bug you forever. I know, Max said, and he couldn't help but smile. So in the original script, Binks, you know, Thackeray, the spirit of Thackeray moves on with Emily, but the cat Binks remains as a pet for Danny, which I actually really like. I think that was a sweet ending. I don't know what you prefer, the theatrical or the script. Well, that and the kiss. Max gets his kiss. I mean, <laughs> agreed. Yes, I like that. I like that. Again, another element adopted. I think that this ending sequence is one of the most epic, like in a kids quote kids movie that I've ever seen. Um, the moment with Binks flinging himself at Winifred and knocking the potion, man, that like brings that brings some fuels for me. I mean, it's such an epic sacrifice it's so good and then the ending where you know he gets to move on and you see the impact that he had on danny is it's just like it's really powerful stuff i mean max drinking the potion to me was like the climax like he's willing to do it to me that was the most powerful part of this it was like the brother is willing to do it the way the that the witches are defeated It's so cool that the effects of it, Winifred turning into the statue, the explosions, as the sun's rising, there's like this epic music. It's so good. It's such a well-done scene. And the thing that I love about it is that it's done in a real real set, like of a a graveyard set. It's not some CGI stuff. It's like an actual, as much as it could be, it's like a practical effect, which, which I think is great. You know, the witches, when they fly... That's all practical. You know, they're actually on harnesses and stuff. Apparently, Sarah Jessica Parker was a big fan of flying. She apparently would stay in the harness all the time, whereas the other two thought it was uncomfortable. But I thought that was interesting. So there is a little end credit here, um, which is not included, I believe, in the in the novelization. And those pages I just read were page 102 and 103. That's the end of the book. But in the movie, we see this little end credit sequence, the parents coming out of the dance party. And I love how the dad says, I thought L.A. was a party town. And the mom is still kind of like singing, like, I put a spell on you, like it's in her head, clearly. We see Jay and Ernie singing, row, row, row your boat, as they're sitting in the cages. Row, row, row your boat. 
gently down the stream. But probably the most important thing is we see the camera zoom in on Winifred's spellbook. And right at the end, last shot, eye pops open and looks around. And then we get launched right into I Put a Spell on You and the credits play. So that's an epic ending. And, and you know, at the time of recording, we haven't seen Hocus Pocus 2 yet because it's not out yet. And I can only imagine that the book opening its eye was going to play some role into the the sequel and to how that's possible to have the sequel. Yeah, even at the end of the movie, it's like the witch is dying. It's endearing. You know, that's like. Mary is like comically dying. So it's like, they're still endearing. And then, yeah, the book to me, it's like, we got a sequel coming up. You know, it's like the book's still there. As long as the book's alive, the story's alive. And so here we are at the end, a sequel in the making here. Um, We know what's happening. So what are your thoughts about what the sequel can be? What's their angle here? Well, you know, just to take it back for a second, you know, I've been waiting for the sequel for 29 years. I, when I saw this as a kid, you know, I remember seeing that ending and then thinking, well, there's going to be another one. You know, there's going to be a sequel and there was never a sequel. Nothing ever happened. And when I first saw it, it wasn't a big hit. Like, I feel like nowadays everybody knows Hocus Pocus. It's like everybody's favorite Halloween movie. But that didn't happen until years later when they reran it on cable during when they run stuff like Halloween Town and all that, you know, like on Disney Channel or whatever. And so for a lot of those years back from 93, when it first premiered for years, a lot of people didn't really talk about it. It wasn't like some big phenomenon right away. So for a long time, I just thought, well, this is never going to happen. Now, as far as it happening now you know there's some stuff that i know about the sequel unless they were lying to throw us off the track i know there's a a pretty good chunk of like the original cast that's not supposed to be back in the sequel now this might age poorly if what comes out and oh there they are but i know thora birch it was said that she was supposed to, they were going to try to give her a part, but they couldn't make it work with scheduling or something like that. Um, I don't believe Jay and Ice were, uh, Ernie were given a role that I know of. And from what I've seen of the tiny little bit of a trailer that they put out, the main characters are three new young teenage characters that have nothing to do with the original, as far as I know, unless they'll give them some sort of backstory that we don't know about. But I do feel like, in a way, that might be good. There's always the danger that they try to stick too close to the original, and they don't make something unique for the times now. For me, the original Hocus Pocus is always going to be that super influential movie that got me into like all this stuff that I've been into my whole life. And it's crazy to think that it's almost 30 years old. Like it's just, you know, when we talk about nostalgia, it's just hard to believe sometimes how much time has passed. And I think that that movie at that time in 1993 was the absolute perfect thing. And I don't think you can like recreate that. I think you have to do something different to make it speak to a six-year-old kid now. Like, if, if I was that same age now, 
what would you do to make me fall in love with it? Like I fell in love with it back in 1993. And I don't know the answer to that, but I hope that they pull it off. Of course, I know that the three witches are all back. I know that Doug Jones is back as Billy. But beyond that, they haven't really released a ton of details. Um, There's a short trailer that's out. Doesn't show us a whole ton of it, um, which I, I won't even talk about in case people are trying to avoid but I'm actually just really excited for it, and it'll be out uh, September 30th. Disney Plus only, no theatrical release, which I am a little bit disappointed. I wish it had a theatrical release. So, I mean, I hope that uh, you know everyone enjoys this episode. We put a ton of time into this, the research that went into this with all the original script stuff and the extended deleted scenes behind the scenes, the trivia. One important trivia fact I forgot to mention, one of the actresses of the witches uh, actually has a real ancestor who was accused of witchcraft. Do you care to guess who it was? Allison? (laughs) No, it was Sarah Jessica Parker. But anyway, uh, you know, we put a ton of work into this episode. This was a real passion project and Starting this podcast, we really wanted to share not just the stuff that we loved, but but to sort of analyze it, to talk about it, not just be like, oh, do you remember this cool thing from back in the day? And so that's why our episodes are often two hours, in this case, maybe three hours long. We'll see once we once we edit it. I just hope that for those of you that are big fans, it gave you a lot of knowledge you might not have had. You know, I would look for those books that I mentioned, the Walt Disney Pictures Hocus Pocus novel by Todd Strasser, and then Hocus Pocus and Focus by Aaron Wallace, really great resources. But yeah, this is just super foundational for me. And I'm not going to try to, I don't think we were going to do like any sort of um, rating like we've done with Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes and stuff. This, this for me is legendary. It's iconic. It's a, a part of who I am. I can't give an objective rating of something like this. It's just not possible. No, I agree. And I've, I've seen this a bunch of times and I can say that doing this podcast with you, researching it and hearing from you, I've doubled my knowledge, quadrupled my knowledge. Like it's, it's been great to experience it in a different light. And so I hope that the listeners hearing this can experience it in a different light because I think we, we hit on issues that, I never would have thought about listening, watching, etc. And I, I hope everyone appreciates that. That's going to wrap us up here. Don't forget, we have a sort of a slate of Halloween content coming out. So definitely listen up for the next uh, the next episode. And one other thing I'd like to mention, you know, since this is such a huge episode for us, I don't know if everyone listens through to the end. We do have theme music at the end, and there's an important message there uh, where it says to follow us on our Instagram or to send questions or comments to us if you would like them to be addressed on the show. I know that we would like to possibly, you know, feature questions or comments. So if you stuck with us this long, hopefully you heard this too. Follow us on Instagram at the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast and Twitter at the Nostalgic MP. And don't forget to send your comments and questions, which may be featured on a future episode. Until next time, when we return to the 1990s.